Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 22, Eigenrobot vs. Extrapy. J.D. Pressman, what's your deal? <laughs> what is my deal? Okay, well, um, good question. Well, you have so, notes. Yeah, I have notes. Right. Uh, we, we we could. I should maybe frame this podcast as a situation where I'm talking with somebody who has done substantial preparation for it, and I've skimmed over some of that preparation. So, in a sense, this this is a case of a robot with few opinions talking to a man who perhaps has quite a few of them, to which you are about to be introduced. Oh my! Well, uh, so basically, I just kind of wanted to talk about. Okay, let me frame it like this. You have the sequences, right? Eliza Yudkowsky writes them about 12 years ago at this point. So the last sequences post was on April 27th, 2009. So in about two years, it'll be the 12 year anniversary. Uh, two months, it'll be the 12 year, 12 year anniversary. Uh-huh. And I feel like when people, you know, like Less Wrong is currently in the discourse. You have the whole New York Times thing. You have the post-rat discourse, which just happens like every two weeks. Wasn't that the joke that, that was made that it just it comes up every two weeks now? Oh, it never stops. It never stops. Yeah. It's never stops. It's never resolved. It's never stops. Really it's never good resolved. About that. And I feel like when people are talking about it, there's very little acknowledgement of where like what less wrong was even supposed to be in the first place, where it came from, let, he, let alone even an evaluation of how well it did. It's almost like you have this weird tangential discussion where people are stuck at trying to define words to talk about something instead of just going out and talking about what actually exists and what actually happened. Yeah, yeah. That's a really weird place, I think, for the discourse to be. So I guess a lot of what I'm looking at when I come onto this podcast is I happen to be very knowledgeable about the history, especially. Mm -hmm. And also, I think that I've spent a lot of time kind of mastering this uh, memeplex, as you might put it, you know, you said, you know, rationality in the EY sense, I think you said in your podcast with uh, Yashikov was, it's a system and you master it, and then you, you know, you become a post rat, yay. But maybe, may, yeah, maybe. Um, but and, and so I think I've spent a lot of time with that system and I have opinions. And so we're going to talk about them. Yeah. But I think the first thing it's useful to talk about in terms of like what's under discussed is that when Eliza Yudkowsky, he, so he, okay, he writes the sequences. It's basically, I guess the first piece of context would be what they even are in the sense that everyone always acts like he sat down, he wrote this giant book, but that's not what happened. He wrote a daily blog post every day for for two for like two years or something yeah and so you have to think about the constraints under which he's writing not everything he's writing is supposed to be some kind of immortal gospel he literally wrote it that day it's almost like he's got a typewriter he just writes it first draft throws it out and yep. that's on the internet and that's his post for the day yeah no, very, nothing uh... he says should be taken like it's this carefully fought over you know, gospel that he spent all this time crafting it because it ju it just isn't. But yeah, that's at actually, the end of uh, all, 
That's actually L. Ron Hubbard's method of writing. It was L. Ron Hubbard's method of writing. Did you know that L. Ron Hubbard actually has the world record for the most books ever written? Yep. First draft, last draft, get it out the door. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Yep. And he would uh, write on, uh, I believe it was butcher paper. So he doesn't even use high quality paper. He just has his typewriter. And he's just like slamming at the type. Yeah. So that's basically how, uh, how, how Yudkowsky wrote the sequences. And I feel like this is never acknowledged in conversation. Nobody ever talks about it. It's just, you know, taken like, oh, he wrote this big, long book. So a bunch of big, long thought must have gone to every word. And it's like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> would, would you say that the sequences were a shitpost? I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think okay. that certain parts of the sequences are like bordering on shit post. Like for example, uh, there's this one post that I always found personally very cringe where he discusses going to a dinner party and he's having this argument with someone and he uh, deploys almonds agreement theorem on them to, to make the argument that like they can't agree to disagree and that they have to pick a position. And it's just the way he writes it is just, it's very, um, Oh, you know, OO's new atheist, you know, 2000's new atheist. Like, it's just extremely cringe. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, let's go into. So, what I was going to say, though, is that he writes these posts. He writes them for about, again, I believe it was like two years. And then at the end, he actually did give people instructions on what he expected to come of these posts. You know, it's not like he just went, oh, I'm dumb now. And what's funny is that he wrote them in quite in, in some detail, really. And then nobody ever references these. They never talk about them. They never, it's never brought up in conversation about what less wrong is or what it should be. It's almost like they just got memory holds. So I'm going to talk about them. Okay. Is this like a, uh, so just, just before you get into that, which I definitely want you to do, this feels a little bit to me like the, the branch of scholarship that started investigating the gospels, you know, hundreds or more than a thousand years after after the life of Jesus, where, you know, suddenly there is this, this biblical scholarship where they started putting together drafts and, you know, very old copies of, of the script gospels. And, and it seems like what you're about to do is like drop some dead sea scrolls. Absolutely. That is, that is the whole point. I'm going to drop some lore on you. (laughs) So by all means. No, no. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I love that genre scholarship. it's, 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 I think it's very valuable to do. But so basically, um, the first one I wanted to talk about was a post called The End of Sequences. You can find it still on Less Wrong. And it was published on April, as I said earlier, April 27, 2009. And so in this post, he's kind of talking about basically saying, I've finished writing all these posts. I've finished writing. And now here's some kind of, here's what I'm expecting of you people. Here's what's going to happen now. And essentially says that, you know, I'm writing the site. And I need to not run the site because as he put it, you can only devote your whole life to one thing at a time. Yeah. And, you know, he's been devoting it to this rationality thing for a few years. And but that's not the most important thing he can be doing. So he needs to go back to AI or you know, whatever Elijah Yudkowsky does. Um, funny, like side point. On that. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny that you bring that up because uh, he actually says exactly in this post so he's talking about a hypothetical rationality book he'll write because he says, oh, yeah, the sequences are like 600 blog posts and all the knowledge is dispersed across this thing, but only major procrastinators or the seriously dedicated can get at. So I'm going to turn it into a book. Maybe, probably. It's coming out real soon now. Uh-huh. And, and uh, he says later in this post, if the rationality book is written, sold and takes off, I may well vanish entirely off the face of the earth. All purposes of publicity have already been served. 
This is the optimal and desirable outcome. It means I am allowed to specialize narrowly. So the funny part he's is that- He's going to vanish off the earth. He's going to ascend. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm just right. really, I'm really stuck on, on this metaphor. Okay, um, yeah, no, it, no it's, fine. It's, it's absolutely fine. Uh, no, but so, and I think that to a certain extent, that is exactly what he did. Like, but we'll get, I mean, we'll get into that later, but I just think that, you know, just noting it right now, I think that that is exactly what happened is that Lestron took off probably way beyond what he expected it to. And uh-huh. then he just kind of thought to himself, oh, well, I, I won kind of at least for this part of it. So I'm just going to go do, you know, I'm not even going to, because I don't know if you've noticed this, but in terms of like public appearances and stuff, EY's like profile has dropped significantly. Like I think his only real public thing left at this point is the like very occasional blog post on his Twitter. But I don't want to get like too into EY beyond like, because we're talking about past EY. We're talking about EY from 2009. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. no. Right. So uh, so in this post, right? So he's leaving is essentially what he says. And then he tells people, what is he expecting you to do? And first thing he says is that he expects that people are going to get very enthusiastic about his ideas. And then that's going to become dangerous because any enthusiasm about ideas taken too far becomes dangerous. Uh-huh. And uh, he says he's really worried that he'll turn his focus away and then find out that someone has picked up the ideas and run with them and gotten it all wrong. I have no comment. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and you know, and he, and he continues, in those ways, I have fought to anticipate at least, I have placed a blocking ghost stone or two and you have been warned. A, block, right. a blocking what? A ghost stone. So in Go, right? Um, oh, playing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, so but here's and then he gets specific. Like, what does he want you to do? He says that basically the sequences were a wager of sorts that you are going to actually do something with the knowledge that you have, that you are not going to just uh, have this passive possession of truth, as he phrases it, but yeah. you are going to go out and do things. And so here's some things that he lists. Uh, seasteading, Nemethulusa Foundation, GiveWell, or Cryonics. And I think that's a really important because those are really specific and those yeah. are almost give us like a benchmark for us to ask, like, OK, how well did we do? Yeah. OK. And, you know, he's talking about uh, going to, uh, you know, effective altruism. I believe he's talking about the Singularity Institute. And so that really gives you kind of an idea of specifically what he's kind of angling at in, in 2009, just as he's finishing up the sequences like those. That's really specific. So it's very much this kind of a Silicon Valley style, um, you know. I want you to try and make a new nation on the sea, maybe. Um, I want you to try and end death, like, you know, with life extension, the kind of Aubrey de, de Grey sort of deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I want you to, uh, so there's give well, so he's explicitly calling out effective altruism. I want you to become effective altruists. And cryonics, I want you to, you know, make cryonics uh, mainstream. I mean, that's not, he does not say that explicitly, but that's kind of yeah. the subtext, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, yeah. So... Did he, did he assign probabilities to, to each of he these? He did not. It's funny you you mentioned that. So one thing about the whole assigning probabilities thing is that, funny enough, I don't think subjective probability became kind of the tool that it is right now until yeah. later. Uh-huh. Especially um, one of the things that happened that was big, or at least semi-big, was Philip Tetlock coming out with his book Super Forecasting and showing off his Good Judgment Project, where essentially he showed that you can do... Uh, subjective probability forecasting and it will actually predict the future that, that you mm-hmm. can that this method does work 
and that it is useful in a real uh, geopolitical kind of intelligence context to, to, to figure out what is going to happen. And I think yeah. that that massively raised the profile of subjective probability as like a thinking tool. Because before that, it's funny because, you know, EY talks a lot about Bayes' law. And so this has become kind of like a meme, right? Yeah. Like Bayes' law. And then he doesn't, he never really follows up on it, right? He never says like, here's how you use Bayes' law. He never says, you know, Bayes' law is only given as like kind of a theoretical model of what it looks like to update and, and do like kind of a certain kind of uh, thinking. So it's yeah. essentially just kind of gesturing at a theoretical prosthetic epistemology. I don't think he ever really intended that you were going to sit. And this is where it gets weird because he writes like this fiction where people do that. But I, I, it, it, and it's weird because he writes fiction where people explicitly use Bayes' law casually and then never actually tells his readers how to do that. Yeah, I I mean, I find the Bayes' Law thing pretty tiresome, honestly. I, I think it's completely tiresome, and so I don't want to talk about it any further. Yeah, well, I, I do just a little bit. All right, sure. Because I I feel like I get to do this. I feel like the way that rationalists talk about Bayes' Law is kind of like um, Gladwellian, you know? It's like, here's this basic tool that you can use to do statistical inference in some way or another. And like, turning it into something that's much better like much more profound than it actually is. I mean, okay, so maybe it's profound in some sense, but it's like, yeah, okay, you can update your priors, you know, in, in this particular way, and maybe your pre-existing beliefs matter and in, in interpreting the outcome and so on. But I don't know, it, it feels a little bit to me like if people were really excited if they learned about um, differential calculus and like, you know, wow, you can, you can use differential calculus to do all this cool stuff. But it's like, yeah, that's, you know, it's a useful tool. You can use it to you know, do, do all sorts of things. But I, I feel like there's some kind of a like Gladwellian fervor about it. That's yeah, no, no, I totally see what you mean. Um, I do have some comments on that, actually. One of them is that I do think that. So a lot of Elijah's focus on Bayes law comes down to him being very interested in statistics and artificial intelligence. So it comes out of the fact that EY is a artificial intelligence researcher and I know he, I think he actually had a recent Twitter thread where he said, I have never called myself an artificial intelligence researcher, but like that, that's what he, right? That's kind of yeah, what he yeah. does. And <laughs> Another way in which he's like L. Ron Hubbard. I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, no, so. Um, <laughs> there's Okay, before we go on, I just want to have every, like stop this podcast right now. No offense to you, JD. Like this is fantastic. I'm having a lot of fun. But the podcasts that everyone should be listening to are the two L. Ron Hubbard episodes of the Dead Authors podcast, which are perhaps the most like the best content ever produced in an audio medium. Dead Authors podcast, L. Ron Hubbard. It's a two parter. The the man is a genius. The guy who's playing L. Ron Hubbard. Anyway, continue, oh please. Oh, yeah. Well, OK. So, I mean, if you're going there. um, Oh, wow. I'm trying now. Now you've got me because now I have to. I'm trying to remember the name of this book. Um, it was, uh, no, no, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. I can, I can, <laughs> okay. in, I can put it in the Twitter friend. So, but okay. So Bayes law, Bayes law. And so Elijah Yudkowsky though, um, the way he sees Bayes laws, he's done this work of statistics, at least theoretically. And he sees it as it is a law. It is a law of thinking this Bayes law, you know, it's, it's Bayes law. It's not Bayes, it's Bayes law. It's a law of thinking. And so in his mind, I think that 
it becomes something that is more than just a theorem because it is almost this <laughs> firm point. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm just. <laughs> no, I, I'm just thinking like Samuel Johnson and and exactly what I could do, what sort of thinking process I could demonstrate on air to, to, to say I refute it thus. Oh, well, actually, I was the other thing I was going to say is that when you brought up the differential calculus, you realize Leibniz actually tried to do that, right? That Leibniz, uh, all his work on mathematics was supposed to lead to a language of philosophy that was rigorously precise that would, you know, he said that in the future, philosophers won't debate. They will say, let us calculate and they will get down and they will use um, these tools of, of symbolic manipulation to come to perfectly provable, rigorous arguments on all matters of human morality, uh, sociology, like that was his vision. That was Leibniz's vision. And so when he was working on calculus, that was meant to be a step towards that. Okay, we should loop back to that too, be, because when you talk about Leibniz and philosophy, I'm starting to think a little bit about Newton and alchemy, which you mentioned around transhumanism. Oh, God, no, 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 you're okay, no, no. Okay, no. Oh, okay, we're definitely getting way off track. Let's you're, get back. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Um, okay. Let's, let's go back to the main branch. All right, sure. Well, okay, but, but so you brought it up. And so I do think that there's a big, to, to, to sum up the Bayes thing, I do think there is a big Mott and Bailey kind of going on with Bayes where people early on were very enthusiastic about it mostly because Eliza Yudkowsky was very enthusiastic about it. I don't feel like very many of them really understood it all that well. Yeah. It was kind of a cargo cult thing. And then over time, it became less and less important. In fact, in the re more recent CIFAR handbooks, I don't think the words Bayes law even appears or Bayes rule or Bayes. I really? think I searched them at one point. Yeah, I don't think it even appears. So that it's no longer something that at least the MRIRI uh, CIFAR branch it really endorses. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I they do, but you get what I mean. Like, it's no longer meant to be thought of as like a practical technique. Uh -huh. And I feel like there is like a silent repudiation that happened, but there was never like a public recantation. And so there's a weird like Mott Bailey thing going on where it's like, you say Bayes Law, it's like, don't bring up Bayes Law. <laughs> Interesting. You get, what I, I, you get what I mean yeah, though? Yeah, like. Yeah. And I think you can see this in public discourse when people talk about it. But yeah, so let's uh, now now we can keep we can keep going. Um, OK, and so EY writes this and that kind of gives you an idea of what he's interested in, in terms of like, why is he writing the sequences? What does he want? You know, he wants people to work on AI risk. What else might they work on besides AI risk? Effective altruism, uh, ending death, you know, making a new nation, cryonics, which is really just part of ending death. OK, so then he comes back and. This is uh, in 2011, so April 20 of 2011. So really almost about two years later, like almost to the same day. And two years later, he is writing this document called The Epistle to the New York Less Wrongians. And this is actually another like kind of... Wow, look at that. Yeah, okay. Th this is a long form exposition of exactly what he wants people to do. It's, it's not, it's like even more long form than like, you know, the end of the sequences, he gives like some brief instructions. And then in Epistle to the New York Less Wrongians, he just writes this full essay where he's explaining like, this is exactly what I want you to do. These are the failure modes that I expect you to encounter. This is how you're going to screw it up. Like he's like, it's, it, it, and this never gets brought up ever. I have never heard someone reference this in any of these conversations. Maybe you don't get to be Jesus and Paul at the same time. I may, maybe, maybe. Um, so, yeah. but okay. So, and even, he even gives a mission statement. He even gives a mission statement here. So let, let's go. Uh, he says, 
stay on track toward what you asked. So, okay, I guess there should be some context here. Uh, so two years later, the sequences have ended. People have founded a, I think, really the first kind of rationalist community, scare quotes, in New York. Uh-huh. And EY is addressing them specifically as an audience. And someone said, you should put this on the internet for other people to read to. And so he did. And so he's telling them, basically, I visited you. You're great. You're, you're doing exactly what I wanted and more. Um, I think you're doing good. And I think that you're about to run into a bunch of issues. And so I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you and how it's going to screw you up. <laughs> Okay. And what and what you should be doing, like what I think you should be doing to advance. So what 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 were the specifics? Yeah, well, so let's let's talk about. It. So he says, uh, stay on track toward what you ask, and my best shot describing the vision is as follows. Through rationality, we shall become awesome and invent and test systematic methods for making people awesome and plot to optimize everything in sight. And the more fun we have, the more people will want to join us. Then he puts in parentheses. That last part is something I only realized was really important after visiting New York. And so I don't want to go over that. Like, this is a long essay, and I really thoroughly encourage anyone reading this to just read it. You can search it. It's still on Less Wrong. It's, uh, you know, Epistle to the New York Less Wrongians. Just read this yourself. It, it, it's, it's pretty good. And I think it actually represents uh, Yudkowsky at kind of his most joyous moment. You know, contextually, I believe he was quite a way into... Well, I know he was, I think he had just finished like, okay, well, I remember reading HPMR in 2011. So I know that he had finished at least the Azkaban arc of HPMR. So really the most important arc of the story. And he's uh-huh. way into it. And the story is becoming popular and the sequences are becoming popular. Like he's seeing his vision becoming realized. This is kind of EY at his most joyous moment. Okay. <laughs> you know, this is probably his hedonic high water mark, And so it includes some of his I would say more fun, like ser- serious, but fun prose. And it, it's just a, a joy to read this. And so I, I encourage anyone who is interested in this subject to, to go track that down. But so one, one question that I have, you mentioned the, the things that he's directing them to do, but what does he identify as the pitfalls? Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the pitfalls because he really goes more into detail in the pitfalls in this essay. So in the first, but r- real quick, in the last one, he said the pitfall was that you read all this and you didn't do anything. If I have not inspired you to do something, you know, really do something, not even put a link in your signature to the sequences, I have failed. That's basically what he says. So then in uh, 2011, two years later, he comes back and he gives more info on the pitfalls. He thinks that some of the pitfalls will include things like you're going to, you know, as you get better and you become really shiny, people are going to want to join you who are not really into this whole rationality thing. They are going to see that you are shiny and that you have something good going on but they're going to be coming from a different mindset. You know, the first people who joined were are in this for the rationality. The people who, you know, if you're doing your job and everyone is awesome and they're becoming awesome and optimized and transhuman gods, right? That they're, you know, they're, that uh, people will want to join and they will not be joining as uh, people who are interested in rationality. They'll be joining as people who want your success. And that yeah. to deal with this alignment problem, you're going to have to kind of push on them that no, the rationality is important. We promise it's not just a weird, uh, you know, like a like a like a hang you know, hangnail or something. I don't even know what you would say. Something that's like a an extra, like kind of like how sometimes things evolve and then they don't. Like uh, a spandrel know. or a uh, yeah, oh. yeah, like a spandrel exactly. I, I I thought I was wondering if that was the word. Okay. Or are you thinking the one where it's like? Uh... No, I'm thinking of a spandrel. So okay. Uh. And so that was kind of one worry he had. Another worry he had was that you're going to have people who you have 
you take pity on and you have the urge to fix and they are not fixable. So he's mm-hmm. actually discussing right at the outset here in 2011, April 20 of 2011, the whole uh, unconditional tolerance of weirdos problem. And yeah. EY's opinion on it is don't throw them out. He actually says the, uh, more or less this. And he actually even goes so far as to say that what you need to do is you need to have like a set period of time for people who are, I love the way he phrases it. He says, you know, I've heard about these people who are making so much progress. And then you ask them a month later and they haven't actually done anything. They're not, you know, but they're making so much progress. And he says, you know, if he says all my mental techniques were developed in the course of trying to do something. So if you think you're making all this improvement and you're not doing anything, that's a really big red flag. Yeah. And he continues that, you know, you should have like a set period, like four months. And if someone isn't making real tangible doing things progress in four months, you should have a committee that kicks them out. And he says that it needs to be a committee because if it's a person, the person will take pity and have the whole decision forced on them. And he says that, of course, you know, if you need to have no pity and no mercy, the only way to really do that besides assigning the task to Lord Voldemort is to have it done by committee. Interesting. Okay, sorry, a little bit of dry humor there, I guess. I, I personally thought yeah. it was. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I was thinking about the problem myself and um, I, I guess I think honestly, like, well, go on. I don't, I don't need to drop in my opinions of this. No, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, I mean, you can, no, you can, you can go on, go on. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating about it. It seems like this sort of problem where the, the cost of having like really effective gatekeeping up front and, and directly is much lower than the cost of actually like expelling somebody from a community once, once they're inside, even if it's something that's good for the community. I, I mean, like, you know, you look at say sex pests, for example, like, you know, people turn into broken stairs or, you know, maybe they, they were always broken stairs, but just, just empirically, it's very hard to kick people out of communities for doing something like this until it becomes, you know, like really transparently awful. Yeah, like they, yeah, right. When it becomes such a massive transgression, but but it's like people see this coming in sure. advance, and sure. I mean that that's an extreme case. But I mean, if you're trying to do something, and you're you're a mission focused community, it it seems like it can be really hard to you know kick out Deadwood. It, it firms, you know, I think are are a better metaphor here, and it's really hard for firms to fire people, and nobody at a firm actually wants to hire, fire anybody, you know. And it's probably one of the hardest things that managers do if somebody's just not pulling their weight. And um, yeah, I don't know. No, so I, no, absolutely. So I do have some thoughts on this. Um, one of them is that I do, I absolutely agree that having gatekeeping norms up front is much more effective than trying to kick people out. And part of that is because, okay, so I always think about this in the context of online moderation because that's my usual background. But let's say that you have someone who shows up to a group on day one, and you don't like them, and you kick them out. Well, okay, what was the cost of that person? Um, about like maybe an hour of their time, right? They don't have any real connections yet socially. They don't blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's say that you kind of, you're kind of w- wishy-washy about it. And you only you only kick people out when they become intolerable. And so yeah. you have someone who kind of seems off at first. And then, you know, as time goes on, they just get worse and worse and worse until eventually you kick them out. And it's been six months. And now this person has like some friends in the group. You know, it, maybe it's become one of their primary social groups. You know, what's the cost of that person of kicking them out? It's a lot greater. And so I think it's much kinder and frankly, not just more efficient, but even just kinder, even to the person involved to 
a fire early and often, so to speak. That's actually the word that Elias Yudkowsky uses in this in this letter to the New York community. He says, you should fire them. And, you know, if someone's a sex pest, you should fire them. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, he doesn't use that fra- that phrase, obviously, but like that's essentially what he's saying. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a humble game theorist, but it seems to me that the way that you want to structure this contract is like, if you're concerned about somebody showing up and making things simply make making things a precondition as for, for entry, you know, I mean, that solves the problem directly and elegantly, like go create something. If it's good, we'll review it and we'll admit you or not. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, and but so that was, those were kind of the pitfalls he's discussing. I mean, he discusses some other pitfalls, but this is a really kind of a long letter. And it's like I said, I don't really think I can do it justice just by just talking about it on a, on a podcast. It really should be read. Yeah. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll link to it in the comments. Yeah. And then, so that's kind of that. And so that's kind of where less wrong started, right? So I'd say, you know, you have 2009 is kind of the first founding period when he ends the sequences and then 2011 is maybe the second founding period because he actually almost founded it twice with HPMOR, which yeah. brought in a whole new and different readership, which as a, as a very, like as a side point, just real quick before I move on, just talking about lore, um, I have kind of this almost, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but kind of this, uh, hypo- let's call it a crank hypothesis that HPMOR in many ways was both the seeds of like less wrongs, like rise and downfall because it brought in a lot of people who are filtered on really liking this elaborate style of fiction rather than doing things. So if you read really early Less Wrong, um, people who are on there are like math Olympiads, they're startup founders. You know, it's this very, it's a much smaller, but much more tightly focused kind of like really Silicon Valley kind of group. And, you know, after HPMOR, of course, you are, speaking to a much wider audience and filtering on a very different band. I know that I myself um, kind of got into less wrong through TV tropes. Like that's, that was just how I happened to find it. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're recruiting off TV tropes, what kind of person are you filtering for? Something to think about. We, hmm. Yeah. Something, something to think about. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting as, as a matter of like, I mean, just, just to use an example of a firm as something that's often very good at getting things done, you know, I don't think that most firms would be more effective if, I I mean, just like say Google, you know, like say Google threw open its doors and said, anybody can be a Google employee. We're not going to pay you anything say, but if you want to like affiliate yourself with Google and come and like do projects with us. I do not believe that would increase the the productivity of Google. Uh, no, I, I I don't I don't imagine it would. Which I you know itself is you know when you say it like that way, you're really kind of getting at a bit of the one of the core kind of issues, right? Is you know how much evangelism should you be doing versus you know how much purity should you be trying to maintain in kind of the core group, right? Yeah. I think I think that's an issue for any. I remember your podcast with. Um, I forget their name, but the Clubhouse podcast. Oh, yes, with Ivy Asterix. Yeah, okay, Ivy Asterix. Yeah, and she, you know, I believe uh, she was talking about the, uh, you know, kind of the transition that it went through where you had all these people coming in who did not share the culture and they would say things like, why are there all these nerds on here? And it's like, well, because it's a nerdy, it's a nerdy, you know, subculture. It's Yeah. 
And so that that you know managing that is a whole topic. We could go on about that for like hours. Really, it's it's a it's a rabbit hole. Yeah, and I I mean I think I want to be clear on my side. I think that some organizations should be sort of ecumenical, and some organizations should be gatekept and you know which which should be the case depends on what you're trying to get the thing to do it's not a i don't view it as a a matter of you know some some kind of deontology but strictly utilitarianism you know like if if you're trying to say create a church that saves all men's souls maybe you should invite everybody into the church regardless of their nation or affiliation and if you're trying to build a rocket ship you probably don't want a lot of members of the public it's interesting you bring that up, the idea of like, um, you know, if you're trying to make a church to save all men's souls, you know, you should probably invite everyone. Because I do think that that's something that is interesting in the context of, and I guess we can talk about that right, just right about right now, because, you know, a lot of the criticism of less wrong is that, oh, like this is a cult or like, oh, this is... um. I I don't know how to put it, but you get what I mean. Like, well, I mean, yeah. we were just talking earlier about L. Ron Hubbard. We were making jokes about how you know that you know it's very. <laughs> I feel so bad because I I don't I feel like I feel like it's a mean thing to say about EY, but it's also. It's okay. I, I I mean, like, people end up poking fun at people who are sort of weird, maybe sure, kind sure, of visionary, sure. and I I mean I. I live in fear of the day that somebody does this about me, you know? <laughs> no. I mean, like there was that, there was that in-group vote and I was genuinely kind of hoping I lost just so that like, I wouldn't be put anywhere close to a sort of a position. Oh no, it's funny. I, I remember, uh, I think it was a, uh, a uh, Kersey was talking about how, as you level up on Twitter, your reward is more and more persistent kinds of jerkwad who like attack you. Oh, there's some of that. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, yeah, no, totally. Um, but, okay, but, so what? I mean, like, I'm, I'm actually not concerned about jerkwads so much as I am about, like, the possibility that, like, somebody would see me as more than a shit poster, and especially if I started to act like somebody who is more than a shit poster. You know what I mean? Oh no, totally. I, I EY himself has this problem. He so when he's writing the sequences, right? He's writing about things like cat girls and volcano layers. And part of the point of that in his own words was that he doesn't want people to take him too seriously because if people take him too seriously, they're going to start to worship him and, you know, and they'll think that everything he says is gospel. And then they'll, you know, take his daily blog post that he was just like writing on butcher on the, on the digital equivalent of butcher paper to be these like amazing grand thesis. Oh, right. People actually did that. Oops. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, like it's it's a problem, and I'm glad he was thinking about it. I I don't know that I would have used his particular approach, but you know, I I, I think that's yeah, he was he was definitely thinking about it. He he comments on it um, several times at length. It's not it's really funny because there's a sense in which his persona is it's what I like to call guru writing, right? Like mm-hmm. um, like Paul Graham, for example, a uh, Steve Palvina, kind of these almost like self helpish authors who have this you know, I am like the master. And if you want to do well at things, you're going to like, listen to what I say. He kind of has that persona to him. But at the same time, there is this like aside where he'll say things like, Hey, listen, like, please don't, please, please don't like, you know, a beatify me, right? Like, please. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) And then they do anyway, because it's it's unavoidable. But speaking of which, uh, so let's talk kind of about the history uh, in terms of ideas, like where did Lesseron come from? 
Okay. Yeah. So I like, so I, I, I oh, say, I, I um, want to say before that, I want to say one thing of, of the things that you mentioned. So seasteading, like AI safety, yeah. life extension and cryonics. I would say they're one for four. I would say they're one for four. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, we're going to come back to that. We're going to actually go, like, we, go into some detail on that. But I, I would curious, agree overall, just briefly there. I'd say they're one for four. I, I'm curious whether we actually have selected the same one, but continue. Oh, interesting. Well, um, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so in terms of the history of ideas, um, what part of it is that. So David Chapman, for example, I, I think we were talking about him earlier. I, I forget yeah, what we, what we did talk about. You mentioned him yeah. in email. Yeah, I mentioned. Yeah, I definitely mentioned him. I'm just trying to figure out if we talked about him earlier in the podcast or not. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to. Everyone know. Everyone listening to this knows who he is. Anyway, it, it, I, I'd be very surprised if people didn't. But as a very brief summary, uh, he's basically someone who comes on and he talks about rationality, scare quotes, and then he'll just talk about less wrong rationality, like it's the same philosophical tradition as, say, Bertrand Russell and and Kurt Gödel, and like you know, oh, this is the same thing. I really don't think it is. I think it's related though. And so let me, let me put it like this. So I would say that less wrong got started because you were talking about this with Yashikov is how less wrong got started. I would say less wrong got started when this kind of autodidact genius decided he'd figure out the key insights to saving the world. So he sits down and writes this dense 800 page book about how to totally restructure your thinking based on a humanized version of analytic philosophy. And it's very comprehensive to the point of including a long section that nobody reads on quantum mechanics then he founded this that New York and nonprofit, uh, this nonprofit in New York. That book's title: Dianetics. Shh, no, no, no. Shush. You don't, don't. You, bad in New York, dedicated teaching people how to think better and avert the apocalypse. And his name was Alfred Korzybski. Oh shit! Okay, that's a wow. Yeah, you ruined the joke. Thank you. Did I? No, you I ruined think I, it. I, I was gonna. Yeah, that was gonna be a smooth beat. I actually, like, I wrote that down. I was like, I yeah, you ruined it. It's all no, right. No, I don't think I did. How many people have done this? I, I thought... Sure. Were... Oh, actually, you know what? How about this? You, I'm going to say that again, and you're going to edit it out, and we're going to do it correctly this time, all right? <laughs> and you're going to pretend like you're surprised. You, you got it? So there's this guy named Korzybski. Uh, actually, I want a beat. Okay. So there's this guy named Korzybski, yeah. And Korzybski is this Polish nobleman, and he is born in, I, I think, like the late 19th century because he, he participates in World War I. So, and he's like a young man when he does it. So he must have been born in, in, in about like the, na- the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And Korzybski goes through his life and he's this Polish nobleman. He's really kind of a wild youngster. You know, at one point in a party, he has like this argument with someone and he waits for them to walk away. And then he pulls out his pistol and shoots like the drinking glass out of their hand. Holy shit. Yeah. Like the, yeah, like this really interesting kind of dude. And he participates in World War One. And so the thing about World War One is that World War I is about when people start thinking for the first time about existential risk because the scale of the war was so vast and just so almost unexpected by most people. But some thinkers did predict it. Um, there is, for example, the book uh, Is War Now Impossible by I think his name was Ian Block or John yeah. Block. And, you know, he asks, like, you know, is the because there is this big argument about can the World War I happen? History. Yeah, exactly. And so there's this big argument about can World War I happen? And <laughs> people made a lot of arguments that are very reminiscent of the arguments used today against the possibility of nuclear war. For example, uh, war would be too costly. People would never do it. You know, st- stuff like that. 
Yeah. But World War One did happen. And when it happened, and actually, I'd like to do another shout out as far as we're shouting out podcasts. There's a hardcore history series on World War One uh, with Dan Carlin that really gets into this, like the exact mechanics of World War One and why it happened and what, you know, why it couldn't be stopped. Blah, blah, blah. And it's gut wrenching because as you listen to it, you realize that he is in a parable way describing how the world would hypothetically end if we start a nuclear war. Yeah, I, I just want to say also, I mean, earlier I, I was talking about the Dead Authors podcast with L. Ron Hubbard, which is ingenious. But also, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to Dan Carlin, just go listen to Dan Carlin. I mean, like, come on, come on. Um, but continue. Not not again. No, no, totally. Dan Carlin is an excellent rest. podcaster, really look, puts a ton of effort into his show. You know, tons of research, really well cited, excellent narration. I, a great Couldn't podcast. <laughs> okay, but so... Uh, Continuing. So Korzybski participates in World War I. And this is when people start thinking about existential risk because the war just prompted the question. You know, at, at, during the war, after the war, you know, people were genuinely asking for maybe the first time, are we just going to end the world? And, and would that Alfred, be good? <laughs> well, Alf, so Alfred Korzybski himself is, he participates and he is haunted by it because all these people die. And what he's really worried about is that all these people died for nothing, that everyone, all the, you know, the, these people go off and they kill each other and then nothing happens that will prevent the next war. So a mm -hmm. lot of thinking in the 1920s and uh, immediately after World War II, basically, or World War I, was how do we prevent World War II? How do we prevent another world war? Yeah. And Korzybski kind of contributed to a lot of the intellectual thinking around this subject. You know, he was part of, there was a scene there was an intellectual scene mm, yeah. about how are we going to stop World War II? And Korzybski was a part of it. And he spends a lot of time thinking about this. And at some point, I believe it's something like he's laying in bed and he's about to fall asleep when the answer just hits him. And it's basically that he realizes humans are these culture machines, you know, they take culture from their parents and they play it out and then they give it to their children who in turn play it out and give it to their children. And he has this idea that over time, humanity is accumulating knowledge and insight and wisdom and technology. And he has this kind of thought that the technical progress is accelerating exponentially, but the social progress is accelerating linearly, if that, if not sublinearly, there's almost no change. You know, mm -hmm. but the, the the institutions that people are using to control their, you know, their societies and their justice and all this stuff have barely changed since the medieval ages. And yet, you know, I mean, you know, you can go from a monarchy to democracy or whatever. But that is that how, how much of the change is that really? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Barely changed since the dawn of agriculture. Sure. I, absolutely. I was actually thinking this is an aside, but I think in some ways we're regressing specifically I don't see a lot of use of religion as a social technology, which it is. And no, I, I agree. I completely agree. Like In fact, we can talk about that. Yeah. When we get maybe, to the post rat section, we're, yeah, we're going to totally. dig into that. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, totally. Um, but okay. So Korzybski is thinking about all this and he's realizing that, okay, if, techno if technological progress accelerates exponentially and social progress accelerates not at all, maybe even regresses, you know, the world will end because we will become so powerful and like these, you know, we're going to become like super powerful, but also 
really, really socially stupid in comparison to our awesome technological powers. And to him, this was the cause of World War I. And I, I think that's a really sober, frankly, quite good analysis. Mm-hmm. And might I add that, you know, it wasn't just Korzybski thinking about this. You know, this was a general topic in futurology. For example, H.G. Uh, Wells' 1936 film, what, uh, what is to Come, I believe is the, the title. He, I actually watched it last night, I think. I even last night or the night before. He's, it actually discusses how in the far off distant year of 1966, uh, England will be a post-apocalyptic wasteland after World War II, which remember 1936 had not happened yet. Yeah. And so his, his thesis, like, you know, he's writing that, you know, in 1966, England will be this post-apocalyptic wasteland because the war won't end, but the technological progress will increase and people will use gas bombs and all this other stuff. And human, you know, it will be a world war. So all civilizations will be destroyed from the total war that will ensue and humanity will regress to a medieval standard of living. And this was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, this was kind of the first version of X-Risk as a, as a subject. And Korzybski de- deliberately developed his philosophy in response as a solution to X-Risk. So, yeah, okay. One, that's good. Two, I'm curious how, I'm curious about the possibility that in fact, the destruction of World War One was not just physical, but deeply social. And in fact, like technological capacity has continued to increase, whereas there's been like a steady degradation of, of the sort of institutional and social capital that you'd want to have. I would, I would agree with that. And I yeah. think that that would have probably been very obvious to Korzybski because Korzybski was a Polish nobleman. Yeah. So he lived in this kind of high society a uh, spot where you know you have the old uh, om- you know the remnants of the feudal system which was for all its faults and problems stable yeah and he lives in this and he's going and you have to remember when you're you have a, a nobility class right all the people who are interesting are being deliberately filtered by various societal mechanisms to all be in the same room yep. and so he experienced that and i'm sure that that was probably a, a huge a stimulus to this genre of thinking. But what's also really interesting to me about Alfred Korzybski is, okay, he writes this book, right? Uh-huh. But what's really interesting about it is that, oh, actually, let me start. So he has the thesis. You know, man is this, he calls it a time binder. You know, he has this thesis that plants bind energy, you know, sunlight, and animals are bind space. You know, they control space. Uh-huh. You know, geographic, but but humans bind time. That to him is the thing that distinguishes man from the other animals in the animal kingdom is that humans have this ability to recall and act on the past, not just as a system one kind of, you know, a subconscious nervous thing, but as this deliberate act of recall and use of previous situations or information. And that to him is like the thing that distinguishes humanity. Yeah. And so he titled his book in a 1921 book. It is now public domain. You can go read it. Uh, he titles it The Manhood of Humanity. And as he's writing it, he's he's kind of collaborating with these analytic philosophers. And so Korzybski, even since a young adulthood, had been following the revolutions in physics like quantum mechanics and the 
development in mathematics, like, for example, the Principia Mathematica, uh, Whitehead and Russell. Yep. And he was really interested in all this. And one mathematician, though, that he became very close to was Cassius J. Kaiser. And his relationship to Kaiser is a little bit like EY's relationship with Jaynes, except it's personal. So imagine if EY actually knew Edwin Jaynes. Okay. And interesting. Who's Jaynes? I don't know him. Uh, he's, the, he's the Bayes guy. He's the oh. guy who takes Bayesian statistics and turns it into this whole intellectual edifice. EY cites him over and over and over. He call, he actually writes an entire post called Thousand Year Old Vampires, where he cites E.T. Jaynes as you know, the most, what's that, the meme, like Albert Einstein was the most advanced being and you will, you will bow to him. Like it's a little yeah. bit of that energy to it. Like he's okay. really, really, he's really interested in E.T. Jaynes as kind of this model of how analytic philosophy can become a practical tool for people to use in a humanistic sense. And that's yeah. the relationship that Korzybski has to Cassius J. Kaiser, because Kaiser is thinking about mathematics in this almost heretical way. He's thinking about this idea that people have principles and downstream of their principles will be what they do in the world. And so they better get their principles right mathematically or, or philosophically. And mm-hmm. so Kaiser is doing this kind of humanistic, ma- sorry, what? No, go uh, ahead. Yeah. He's doing this kind of humanistic mathematics and Korzybski is all over it. And he incorporates it into his book, Manhood of Humanity. And Kaiser actually gives a comment at the end of one of his books. I think it was uh, on fate and, and something where he actually has a chapter dedicated to Korzybski. So they're really close to each other. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and so that's kind of part one of the Korzybski story. So Korzybski okay. publishes this book and it's pretty funny. So he publishes it and he writes at the end of the book. Okay. So now that I have laid out my thesis of how, we can, if how, of what is wrong with the world, now we're going to fix it. I'm going to explain the solution to you and I will come out with a new book in a year or two. Mm -hmm. The book actually took him 10 years to write. Classic. And so his, his, the next book was called Science and Sanity and it came out 10 years later. So I think in in 1941, 1942 and Science and Sanity is basically the sequences if they had been written in the 1930s. Interesting. Okay. Okay. It, 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 it like it down to the dense jargon down to people kind of making fun of it for being a cult down to. And one of the things that's really funny is that because it's the 1930s, Korzybski has all this trouble finding a publisher because there is no other book like, especially at this time, Science and Sanity. It's totally new. And even for Manhood of Humanity, it was kind of a little bit of a crank hypothesis. So to actually publish it, there's a funny story where a guy that he's trying to get to publish the book has a dream where a deceased relative tells him that he needs to pay attention because someone is about to come to him with an epoch-making book on time and he needs to publish it. And so the guy has this dream and he goes to Korzybski and he says, I'd like to publish your book right now. Wow. Okay. Fortunate. Very fortunate. Especially because, you know, of all the things that they could say that the book will be about, an epoch-making book on time, that is Manhood of Humanity, yes. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So he gets this book out. Yeah, two books. So Manhood of Humanity, then Science and Sanity. And it's around the Science and Sanity point, but he gives his philosophy, his new movement, his philosophy, a name. General Semantics. And so what Korzybski is on about, mostly, is this idea that people do things with language that are bad. 
And they do things with <laughs> the way they evaluate things that are bad. Okay. And one of the real, one of the biggest things he thinks is that the Aristotle paradigm of identity is wrong and bad and, and that it's like crippling people philosophically. So okay. one of his most famous statements is A is not A. Another one is the map is not the territory. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that is a, that is a Korzybski quote. Uh, he famous, you know, you know, like that's his most famous enduring contribution to philosophy is Korzybski is the man who said the man is the map is not the territory. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> you can tell I haven't read the sequences or really much of anything. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> it's great. No, so, no. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So, so this is the background on Korzybski and I know you're, you're weaving this as part of a larger narrative. So, so how does this relate back apart from it's a sort of a clear antecedent of maybe some of what L. Ron Hubbard was trying to do or, you know, more directly what Eliezer was trying to do? Well, it's funny you mention that because Hubbard actually comes after Korzybski, right? So Hubbard yep. is uh, like 40s, 50s, I believe. And he is kind of taking a lot of general semantics. And then how, I, Scott actually uh, put, he actually says this in one of his posts, Extreme Rationality, it's not that great. He says something like, uh, Hubbard takes the, the, the material basis of general semantics strips it out, replaces it with some flim flam and sells it as like snake oil to people. And that's Scientology. Yeah. Kind yeah. Of his, that, that was Scott's evaluation of it. Don't sue me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scientologists listening to this. We love Eliezer. We love L. Ron Hubbard. Don't sue us. <laughs> You're right. Um, and so yeah, there's the other, there's a, I, I could go into like the, like, I actually have an essay on my, on one of my websites, wrestlingnon.com, where I talk about like the, almost the intellectual lineage starting from alchemy going down through, uh, L. Ron Hubbard and the science fiction fandom to Eliza Yudkowsky. Yeah. Which I, I, real quick, just to clarify, I do not say that L. Ron Hubbard is an antecedent of Eliza Yudkowsky. Okay. Like don't, please do not go around quoting me on this and saying that because it's not actually what I think and I will be you very mad. You can quote me on it just for fun. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. He's blocked me. It's fine. <laughs> oh, no. Every day I I'm imagining Eliza Yudkowsky listening to this podcast now. That that would be... I, I'm so sorry, Eliza. I'm, 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 I'm making you legible now because it's it's been enough time and people need to know. So He's, he's always been more legible than... Maybe even yeah, but I'm I'm gonna make him like even more legible. In fact, um, I I was actually about to get to the next thing is we could talk about like you want to understand like Eliza Yudkowsky. Like I can just explain like exactly like where Eliza Yudkowsky comes from in terms of stuff. I I was just starting with that because I, I think I think I sort of do, but also I mean maybe that I mean okay, so we've been being rude, but that that might be possibly a little bit genuinely rude. I need to think about that a bit. But so understand him in what sense? Well, okay. I don't mean like in a psychoanalysis way. I just literally mean, how do you, how do you become Eliza Yudkowsky? You know, if you're sitting around in 1995, because I, I think this is the question I had when I first read the sequences. Um, I, you know, I was about 14. I was reading the sequences for the first time. I asked, how could this person possibly exist? He knows so much and he's so smart. And you know, I, I had like, you know, like that really dumb, like when you're young and you're stupid and you read like your first r- decent offer and you get like really over attached to them. Yeah. It's a little bit of that, like that kind of, yeah, like that, like the, the, a lot of people have that kind of crush with Ayn Rand, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was kind of like sitting there like, how could this person possibly exist? And so part of my research was figuring out 
you know, if you're just sitting around in like 1992 or whatever, how do you become Elias Yudkowsky or 1989? Yeah. So I do know that. Um, I, I wouldn't mind saying it. I don't think it would be rude. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, like, uh, sort of a like intellectual. Yeah, I don't. Body. I don't want to psychoanalyze him. I think that is rude, okay. and I also think that it's not. I don't think he's the kind of per. I don't. I don't think there's a problem with him. I think he's saying, and the world is crazy. So. Fair. Okay. But real quick, just to, I wanted to taper off the Korzybski bit. And so what I think is interesting about the Korzybski thing is that Elijah Yudkowsky, you might be thinking, oh, so Elijah Yudkowsky is like plagiarizing Korzybski, right? N- n- no, or at least probably not. This is where it gets interesting. Elijah Yudkowsky claims he has never read, actually read a work by Korzybski, or at least he claimed that in like a 2011, 2012 blog post. Okay. I identify when with he was, that. Yeah. When he was discussing... Uh, when he was discussing rationalist fiction, he said, oh, by the way, I just learned that the map is not the territory because he actually learned about general semantics through Hayakawa, who was kind of Korzybski's apprentice. Mm. So there is a direct intellectual lineage there. But Eliza Yudkowsky, I'm sure if he was listening to this, would be very shocked to learn that there was this guy who basically tried to do everything he did to save the world. Like, I, don't, I think he would be very shocked to, to learn that. So... How did how did Korzybski fail? Like, what things in particular do you think led to his failure? And do you think that the the rationalists are in some way like replicating those errors or avoiding them? Or oh, that's a good question. So I think that uh, a lot of just how Korzybski failed was part of just being too early, too prescient. Um, a lot of the intellectual tools that so I actually went and bought some books, uh, general semantics books. I bought The Art of Awareness by Samuel J. Boyce, which is kind of the post rationality of general semantics. Yes, general semantics had a post rationality phase. Okay, like this is literally almost the same subculture, but transplanted back fifty, you know, fifty hundred years, whatever. Oh, they probably dress better than we do. Oh, pro- probably. Um, and so I bought Art of Awareness, which made me so angry that I actually threw it at the wall because there's a passage at some point where he says that, you know, the, the basic thing to understand is that there is no way to know the world outside of ourselves. And I said, you can predict things. And I, at that point, I just got so mad. I just like, oh, sure. It. Yeah. yeah. Like, it was like, no, but I think that it really does get across, though, how much more powerful um, Eliza Yudkowsky's epistemology actually is in terms of like coherent, like in terms of co- both coherence and in terms of just, like practical use. I do mm-hmm. think that the less wrong scene is much more well-developed than general semantics ever was. Yeah. I mean, like, was that popular outside of Poland? Yeah, absolutely. It was a semi-popular in the United States. There were some colleges that caught that taught some courses in general semantics. It was not... It, it achieved moder- pretty moderate, I'd say moderate success, far below what Korzybski wanted, of course, but not, not, not like, you know, not like a total failure, not like the totally obscure thing. Like, it did... It got memory hold, right? Because you've never, I'm sure you've probably haven't even heard of it until now, but. Never in my life. But I mean, we've established that I'm illiterate. So. It's no, no, a- no, it's fine. I, I, did, I, I only heard like murmurs about it. And then I just went and started looking. I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, the oh, deeper yeah. I dug, it was like, what? So, but, yeah. yeah no, I, I was going to say, so like, how did they fail? I think a lot of it, part of it was just being too early. You know, a lot of the tools that make less wrong good just weren't developed yet, theoretically. Yeah, I think part of it was that that I this is hard to get across, but so okay. One thing is that Korzybski, his frame around rationality, he did not call it rationality, right? He calls it general semantics, and his frame is that everyone is a little insane, and general semantics is about becoming more sane. So he thinks of sanity in this very broad way, actually fairly similar to the way we're starting to think about mental health now, where people are thinking about mental health beyond just like 
literal diagnosable pathology, like there's subtle gradations of mental health. Yeah. Uh, Korzybski, one of the things that kind of tarnished his reputation was he famously believed that schizophrenia was caught was uh, not like a neurochemical issue. He believed it was caused memetically that people mm. would dip into a meme plex that made them schizophrenic. And I think oh, that no. actually uh, that idea is like certain aspects of that idea are, are in fact coming back. Obviously, we now know that most cases of schizophrenia are are neurochemical in, in origin. But I think there is some of this. There is something to the I think he had the seed of something, but he just happened to be wrong on some of the bets he made intellectually. What do you think would happen if in 10 years, everybody who is a major poster on Twitter had developed like full blown schizophrenia. Uh, no, we're not going there. No. Like, acts. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. 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 I mean, if you, if you, I mean, I mean, if you mean seriously, um, I mean, like, it, I think it, it really does... depends. I think that most people embedded in institutions would be, would are not posters on, on Twitter. I don't think they're crazy. I do oh, think I that do. a lot of the, memet- <laughs> I do think that a lot of the memetic, I think a lot of the new energy, the new momentum in society would fall off and it would be very bad for people. It, it would be a very bad thing to have happen. So I hope that Twitter does not cause schizophrenia. That would be terrible. But honestly, like, you know, Korzybski was talking about info hazards and meme and memetic diseases and stuff before there were words to describe it. Yeah. Okay. Like he's really prescient here. And I think a lot, and like I said, part of it is being too prescient. A part of it was that he, so at the time when Korzybski was doing things, he made a gamble on the future prestige of psychology. Now, I don't know if you've read a bunch of like 1950s or 1940s era sci-fi novels, but there is this general belief in society at that time that psychiatry and psychology were going to completely solve the problems of the human soul, that they were going to become a written no, that it was going to become a rigorous science of yeah the human mind and that this was going to become absolutely revolutionary, that they would become the most powerful people in society. So Remember in Isaac in, in second uh, foundation and I, yeah, absolutely. Like in yep. Isaac Asimov's foundation and actually in all of Isaac Asimov's novels, he takes it as a uh, prediction that psychologists will become the most powerful class in society. That is what was expected by a lot of forward thinking people. And I think Korzybski kind of saw this too. And even uh, there's actually even a general semantics equivalent of HPMOR, which inspired HPMOR, uh, EY-based HPMOR, at least stylistically, uh, partially off of the book, uh, The World of Noel A. I forget the author's name at the moment, having a brain fart. I'm very sorry. But it's The World of Noel A. You can look it up. It's a very famous sci-fi book. And it the, the premise, though, of The World of Noel A is that the foundation of world government becomes the Institute of General Semantics, that the Institute of General Semantics actually grows to the point where it is the world government. Uh huh. So there was a lot of very high expectations placed around this, the social status that psychologists and psychiatrists would wield in the future. Mm-hmm. And a lot of general semantics as a movement was basically imagine if the less wrong people had all like structured their entire movement around the idea that Bitcoin will succeed and then it failed. Uh huh. And that would be kind of a lot of what happened to general semantics, I think, is that they structured the movement around the idea that therapists and psychiatrists and, and these people are going to become extremely powerful. Oh, no. And then they didn't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's good, though. I mean, can you imagine a world where psychology was 
was actually effective in some sense. Oh and, yeah, and I, and I have no, I have no, no comment. <laughs> I mean, like well, okay, but so, but actually, since you bring it up, I mean, less wrong kind of is a, you can almost think of it as as reform psychology in a certain sense, like because because when you think about it, a lot of what they're talking about is hey, we're going to try the thing that you know we're going to try and actually understand how humans do things, and we're going to talk about game theory, and we're going to talk about uh, evolutionary. You know, you know, uh, uh, evolutionary psychology and signaling and all this other stuff that does g- dig uh, deeper into why humans do things than a lot of classic psychoanalytic texts do. Like, I think that the theories that are available now are are better than like what was available when you had Freud and Jung and, and those other thinkers. I'm not saying they're worthless, just that they were doing a lot of empirical work. And I think that there wasn't, you know, they had theories, but the theories weren't very good. They were kind of just a scaffolding for the empirical observations. Yeah. Okay. You know, but, you know, but wait a second. So, I mean, you were, you were saying that, like, if you talk about trying to figure out why people do things or how people act, and I don't see any of that in those four major points that Eliezer identified as of great interest to rationalists. Yeah, well, I don't think. Yeah, so I, that's actually. Oh, thank you. You're you're using me on myself, Mike. I have already improved the discourse within one podcast. No, okay. <laughs> no, no. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so this is a interesting point, and I I agree with you. I think that I'm talking more about the meta of the movement than I think the okay. object level. The object level was the things I was talking about. But I think there was a meta thing because uh, EY says right in I think it's the epistle to New York Less Wrongians. He says rationality is the master hack that tells you all the other life hacks to use. That's very Socratic. Yeah, it is. And actually, okay. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Okay. So then that's kind of, so yeah, does that kind of answer your question about Korzybski? I think we can kind of move on from, from him. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually, I mean, so maybe you have something that you want to talk about next. I'm actually starting to, view i'm sort of starting to see rationality maybe maybe this is just an argument about virtue and maybe yadkowski views rationality in some sense as as the only virtue in the same way that socrates viewed wisdom everything is downstream of it i i could you know what i'm gonna be honest with you that is a really great point and i really wish i could i could do it but i i don't feel equipped to that's have fine. that conversation with you. I just don't, I, this is me admitting my own inadequacy. I feel like that's a really good point, but I'm like, it's coming out of left field for me. I'm not prepared at all for it. And I don't actually have any immediate thoughts that come to mind that I think would be worth sharing. That's fair. I, um, I, honestly, I do think it's a good point. My entire existence is, is coming up with things that are left field and throwing them at people. And, um, no, it's, I, it's I, respect, it's fine. I respect your, <laughs> I respect your unwillingness to say things that you are not sure whether they're true or not. No, I, I know my limitations I to a certain extent anyway. <laughs> so, um, okay. So, so what did you have next then? Yeah, I was going to talk about, so, um, okay. So that's a lot, that's Korzybski's story and, uh, decades pass general semantics peters out and over time, more theoretical things are invented. So, for example, I believe that Jay, uh, J- Jane's uh, Bayesian stuff, I don't remember exactly when he's writing that, but it's somewhere in like that like that 60s, 80s period. I don't even remember anymore. Gosh. Yeah. But I believe the Bayesian statistical revolution, so to speak, happens in the 60s. I'm, not, I'm just, this is very approximate. I do not know my history well here, so I could be completely off. But yeah. 
It's fine. It, the point is, it's in the latter half of the 20th century. It was not available to Korzybski, who died in 1950, to my memory. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Korzybski would not have had any of the theoretical tools developed in the latter half of the 20th century available to him. Yeah. And so what happens to general semantics after Korzybski dies is it kind of, I guess it just kind of peters out, right? I feel like when I, for example, when I read their, uh, they have a book for normal people called uh, Drive Yourself Sane. And I bought it and you can buy it on Amazon and I read it. And it's really is very kind of rationalisty, except it's like proto-rationalist. It's not as good. There's yeah. like some little bits that are that they've got that are like, you know, new to me. But most of it is like, yeah, I've seen this, but I have a better version. <laughs> okay. And so I feel like a lot of it was just that the theory wasn't quite there. And, you know, uh, the way you structure the movement, right, as we talked about, like if you're structuring it in a certain way and then that expectation collapses, that's going to be problematic for you uh, socially and, you know, or- many, organizationally. Many such cases. The worst thing you can do if you're a millenarian is to make actual predictions. <laughs> I don't know. I think that a lot of uh, science fiction people who made predictions in the first half of the 20th century are underrated, but that's a different set. Yeah. Cool. Actually, we can talk about that right now because what we're going to talk about is okay decades pass general semantics peters out you know it has like some success and it does re- you know parts of it reach into the culture but it just doesn't have enduring success it kind of gets memory hold it kind of gets lost and part of that is that alfred korzybski did not interact well with traditional academia academia is a institution for preserving ideas and knowledge and korzybski was a little hostile to it a lot like eliza yukowski and part of what that meant is that, especially in the first half of the 20th century, is that you're not getting access to academic publishers. You're not getting access to prestigious uh, ha- publishing houses where librarians will buy your book and preserve it and make sure that it's available to scholars when they go to the card catalog to see what exists on a subject. You're not using standard academic terms, and that means that ideas you develop don't get referenced in this long chain of ideas. And so the knowledge is largely lost over the ensuing decades. And so kind of what happens later, though, is that analytic philosophy also undergoes this uh, kind of revolution of sorts where people realize that you cannot, you know, that Leibniz's uh, language is not possible. You know, his rigorous language that will let you prove any philosophical argument is rigorously correct is not possible. Okay. is essentially what people realize. You know, that you can prove that it's not possible. And this is its own kind of problem because, you know, Hilbert, for example, was very upset by it. Yeah. But but people and I think that like, for example, so to bring up Chapman again, I think that there is a tendency to talk about this like and that was the end of analytic philosophy, even if that's not necessarily what you're saying. It's like the subtext almost like. And then analytic philosophy was killed and everything after that is just a cargo cult of, of thing. But that's not really true. Like that's at least that's the subtext, I think, that that it gets expounded on. Do you get what I'm talking about? Like, especially when you talk to do, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, so if I wonder if I could try to rephrase it. So I think the argument that you're making is that after after a number of the these difficulties that developed and trying to I'm not a mathematician, but develop. Sure, kind I'm, of I'm really not either. I'm, I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Like some some of the failures of, um, you know, some of the efforts to 
really rigorously ground mathematics in a series of axioms that were taking place in the late 19th century started falling apart owing to things like Russell and Gödel. Like um, after those fell apart, maybe it was all over for analytic philosophy and everything after that has been sort of less useful. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think I, I think that's kind of the I don't I don't know if people I think some people make that argument explicitly. Yeah, um, I'm not. I don't know if I want to say Chapman is one of them. I think he skirts with the idea almost. Uh huh. Like, well, like he'll say, okay, he'll he'll say, for example, that rationality is a system that you can learn. It has its uses and it has its limitations. But a lot of like there is a way that he is trying to put the stake in the heart of of analytic philosophy, though, which is basically, you know, rationality uh, vis a vis analytic philosophy, whatever you want to call it, cannot be the whole worldview is really the core of the, because what people wanted out of the Hilbert program and stuff was that you would have this complete scientific worldview. You know, it's almost, uh, I, again, I'm not a super great scholar at this part of the philosophy of history of ideas, but I think it was Hegel or something who prom who, who like his Stanford of, of, uh, Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy entry says something like he had promised people a Royal road. And then uh-huh. analytic philosophy was partially a way to try and and, and traverse it. Yeah. And so the Royal road did not quite work out. And so I think that there is a definitely a statement in Chapman, at least that rationality and maybe to maybe even generally analytic philosophy cannot be the whole worldview. You cannot have this perfectly rational scientific worldview that is dreamed up by these early 20th century mathematicians. They themselves proved it was impossible and a lot of these people are like cargo cultists who are running around acting like it's still possible when it clearly isn't. And, you know, that that that, that idea just needs the stake put through it and there's nothing of value there, or at least... I, okay, so I think that... I, I think you're making two separate sorts of claims um, in that sentence. And one right. of which is like, maybe you can't do this thing very rigorously in, the, in, in like a self-contained system in the way that people had imagined originally. And, but the second one is is much stronger specifically and there's nothing of value there and I, I don't i don't think most people who identify as post-rationalists would agree with that second part like right. just like i i think i mean i, I usually feel like i'm being mott and bailey on the issue if we're being totally oh, honest okay like yeah if, like if we're like i feel like if you like press them they'll say oh but of course like it's a system and it has its uses and it's useful but then like once like you're not putting them on the hot seat it's <laughs> nerds yeah well i mean and that's that's kind of a shorthand i i think i don't mean to speak for everybody but what i'm thinking about the older group of people in particular who are involved in in something that might be called post rationality back in say like 2015 2016 most of them spent a lot of I, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm a trained hard scientist. And after that, I spent a lot of time working in economics, which is as far as social science goes, is pretty well rational, actually. I mean, the, we have axioms about human behavior, and then we just put them in different circumstances and see how they play out. And um, I mean, I think in that case, very expl- I, economics is the thing that I know best. I think it is pretty close to a kind of rationalism. Or just something in the rationalist tradition, if you were to be really muddy about that term. and um, Yeah, it, uh, yeah, that's another thing is I feel like a lot of when people are talking about rationality, they're almost talking about like six different things and it would be useful if we could split them up, but I don't want to dig into that. 
particular yeah. dissection right now. Because the yeah. thing I was going to say is that I don't think analytic philosophy is dead. I do think uh, useful and really important uh, advances were made in the latter 20th century. Subjective probability in like the Bayesian sense is one of them. And I think that Elijah Yudkowsky, he has a little bit of boosterism about it, right? He's almost too enthusiastic. But I do think that he's not wrong, just annoying almost. Yeah, yeah I'd say there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, yeah. Um, but I, I do think that advancement, you know, advances were made that Korzybski would not have had access to. And so kind of going forward, going forward, it, you know, it peters off in time. Eventually, uh, you have this guy, Elijah Yudkowsky, who's a young person, and he wants to study AI and all this other stuff. And so one question I had when I read the sequences was, how do you become, you know, how do you become Elijah Yudkowsky anyway? Well, he actually kind of tells you in a roundabout way, not quite clearly, but if you like pay attention and read between the lines. So he starts out when he's young and he wants to be a physicist. And one of the things that I've said before, actually to Chapman on Twitter was I said, you know, one of the things that I feel like you're leaving out when you discuss this is that, you know, EY wanted to be a physicist. And from the perspective of a physicist where things are almost like almost deterministic, right? Because once you get small enough, they're not deterministic anymore, which is fun. And actually yeah. even at the macro scale, they're not deterministic once you're big enough because the small things begin to influence it. But it, to an approximation deterministic, right? Like most of physics, when you're thinking about it, you have to think in a deter, like, especially at the macro scale, like classical mechanics, you're thinking in a deterministic mode. There is no yeah. uncertainty in how yeah. this object will move. But even in physics, well, I mean, like, but, you know, even- And then there, you quantify your uncertainty, right? So when you do a lab, uh, lab experiment, for example, and you say, I got this value, you are expected to quantify exactly how uncertain you expect to be, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And but so- even, uh-huh. But what I was going to say is that, so from the perspective of that, like if you're starting with that, subjective probability is already meta-rational. Hmm. Because it it is admitting that there is fundamental uncertainty that can only be accounted for as a subjective reasoner, you know, under uncertainty, that there is not this God's eye view of the world you can take that will give you good answers to everything. It's not possible. We're yeah, not to even just admit the base, what? We're not going to get into meta rationality versus post rationality, are we? No, 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 we're not. I okay. was just going to say that from the perspective of you know, like just a physicist, I would think that Bayes is already meta rational. So a lot of what Chapman, like, like from like just within EY's frame, like a lot of what Chapman would be talking about would be like meta meta rational almost. Like, and then Bayes itself has issues, and I think that EY is aware of this. Yeah, he he, he is. Like, so if you actually read the sequences. There's a weird thing that EY is doing where he has to talk about uh, he has to talk about the fact that certain things are laws, right? So there's the laws of physics, there's Bayes, which is like this law of thought, at least in EY's conception. You know, I do not know enough to be able to like, tell you that as a fact, but it seems plausible. And as he's doing this, he has to emphasize these things are laws, that they are inviolable. At the same time, he also has to talk about uncertainty because you are reasoning under uncertainty. Because if you're not, you're not even really admitting the subjective probability thesis, right? Uh-huh. So to have Bayes, you can't, you know, you know, you know if you say, like, because this is the whole argument that he himself has in the sequences with a, a group called the Frequentists, who are people that say, basically, Bayes is pseudoscience, there should be no subjectivity in mathematics. The entire idea that you can have, like, this prior that you just pull out of your butt and you do math with it is insane. 
Yeah, I, I mean, like you know, I'm, I I would identify as neither a frequentist nor a nor a Bayesian. Sure. But I mean, like you know, I I think if you take a step back and if you look at Bayesianism, like I I don't even think it's a matter of so much like, I mean, if you talk about prior selection, typically you would run, you, you know, you would run a Bayesian model across a like perhaps a range of priors and see how much that influences it, right? And oh, you can no, actually abs- absolutely. Oh, sorry. And and so like it's not even a it's it's almost like um kind of like a rationality over over subjectivity, right? Or an objective thing over subjectivity. Like yeah, suppose that yeah, you specify no, I, I get what you're talking about. And that's what I was kind of saying is that within Bayes already is the seeds of a subjective worldview. Because to even admit that, you know, Bayes is a good idea, you have to admit that you can have a subjective perspective that is better than this kind of pure objectivity that is advocated in, in frequentism. Oh, I'm saying the reverse. I'm saying that Bayes is a way of taking subjectivity and reframing it in a rational perspective, right? I think I think so. I'm just you know you you can use Bayesian methods right to to uh, figure out a prior, but it's also those don't the real world is messy and it doesn't quite. So now you need like other because even in the sequences itself, EY kind of acknowledges like you know where do priors come from, and he says like don't ask that. It's kind of a joke. Like he means it jokingly, like you know, like, yeah. But you know, actually, though, so like, um, you know, if if you look at if you look at game theory with uncertainty, right? There's there there are certain sets of priors that are rational, and there are certain sets of priors that are not rational. And like the the solution depends on which priors people have, and that's that's actually kind of an interesting case here as well because yeah. So we're gonna get, yeah we're gonna get to that like right after this because that's the okay. next thing I want to talk about because. How did less wrong kind of not succeed as much as it could have maybe? So to fast forward real quick, because we're getting pretty late here. So yeah, fast forwarding, EY, he's this young guy and he's studying physics. And then he gets into, so first he actually reads a book and the book is called Great Mambo Chicken by Ed Regis, uh, Great Mambo Chicken, The Transhuman Condition. And this is kind of the book that, at one point, he writes, this made me a transhumanist. And then he kind of walked that statement back and said, no, 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 Engines of Creation by, uh, by wow, Drexler made me a transhumanist. But I think that's really kind of just splitting hairs because Great Mambo Chicken is where he's introduced to the idea of nanotech in the Drexlerian sense. So he reads this book. And this book is published in 1990. Mm-hmm. And he has this realization as he's a young person studying physics. He says, no, I don't want to do physics. I want to do this. You know, I want to do this transhumanism thing. And transhumanism itself is actually a fairly recent ideology movement, whatever you want to call it, because there's lots of, there's a long prehistory to it, but the actual notion of like transhumanism itself only really appears in about, you know, the 80s and 90s in the way we would recognize it as a modern movement. Yeah. Okay. And EY kind of is getting in almost on the ground floor of this. You know, he's one of the first big contributors, like on the Extropians mailing list. Which the funny thing is that about the Extropian mailing list is that EY gets mad at them over over some drama, and he splits the list. Basically, he says, "I'm forking the list. I'm going to make my own list." Uh, SL four where we're going to talk about AI and the singularity because the extropians don't understand like the dangers of technology because they're too gung-ho about it. But so when you think about like, how do you become EY, right? Like going back to this. So he reads this book and this book is actually excellent in terms of it takes you straight through 
you know, this is space travel, and then this is nanotech, and then this is how nanotech uh, combines with cryonics to defeat death, and then this is how you can make artificial minds that will then take over the universe. It's like really, really like the ex- kind of accelerationist viewpoint that is underlying EY's version of transhumanism is right here. Like it's, it's almost laid out. So in terms of if you had read this book in 1990, all you would really have to do to become EY afterwards, assuming you're already a precocious person with lots of IQ points and stuff, is that you get on this mailing list, right? You're on the extropians mailing list now, which is like the, the, the pro, you know, the transhumanist mailing list for a long time, for some years. And then you get into AI, you know, you're studying AI because you want the singularity to happen. And then through that, you get into like this, uh, Jane's thing. And then you get into, you're talking to Robin Hanson, you get into these biases literature and you, you know, at, at some point your worldview is going to coalesce into something like Elias Yudkowsky's worldview if you are pursuing that track and you take those decisions. And do, do you see it like how you can just, because for me, it was a huge mystery. I had no idea, like, how do you become this person? And then it's like, once you actually research, it's like, oh, it was not actually that many steps to become Elias Yudkowsky in, in the yeah. basic sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's probably true. I mean, I, when I, when I look at my own intellectual history or the, the like history of thoughts that I've had about the world, I don't know that it's really particularly complicated. Although I don't know, I also don't really have a particularly unified worldview. So maybe it's harder than that. Sure. Um, and so one thing, one aspect of less wrong and kind of uh, this worldview that I think is understated is the the extent to which the less wrong kind of viewpoint depends on transhumanism. So like if you go back to what he's talking about, what should be people be doing, defeat death, cryonics, make your own nation, like cease eating, which is actually almost straight out of the extropian playbook because the extropians were known as these hardcore libertarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of why the word transhumanist and you know rationalist were not the word extropian, which was like what it was originally called, because uh, Max Moore, the founder of extropianism, was literally like the foundation of our uh, movement will be rationality and reason. That's li- like what he says, and he would have been all over this stuff, I'm sure. Oh, people have always been saying that. Oh, people have always been saying that, I know, but I just meant that you can you can see the extropian influence in it, though, because they're hyper-libertarians. And so when you look at what he is telling, you know, Elijah Yukowski is telling people to do in the, the end of sequences post, it's literally like just a straight extropian platform almost, just yeah. except with AI risk. Because that's really how I personally view Eliza Yudkowsky's overall philosophy. I think of it as a series of a pa- of patches that are applied to Max Moore's philosophy, almost. Okay, interesting. So, and so I I often call it when I want to call I I call it Eliza's extropy because it's basically what it is. It's like his set of patches to this other earlier viewpoint. So, would you call it like an extropian heresy? Um, almost, yeah, that is actually basically how he founded Lesron almost is that so the specific story, as I understand it, go, I haven't read the mailing list yet. I, I plan to do that at some point, but you know, they, there's so much to read. Yeah, but the, the gist of the argument, as I understand it, is that he's on the extropian mailing list and he's having this argument with people and he actually describes it in the sequences that they're arguing about uh, nuclear deterrence and whether technology will become dangerous. And one of the founding planks from, from Max Moore with extropianism is that he really hates this precautionary principle kind of viewpoint. And he really wants people to like slam the acceleration pedal on technology. They need to just be doing it as fast as humanly possible. You know, get to the singularity as soon as you can. And EY is 
getting into these discussions and he's starting to have doubts. You know, the doubts start to creep in like, wait, no, this is actually kind of dangerous. And he eventually decides that the extropians are not taking the ideas seriously enough for him and they're not you know, because to, to eventually, to his mind, he realizes after reading, I think, like Werner Vinge or something, he realizes, well, the singularity thing is going to make this nanotech thing irrelevant anyway, so I don't really need to think about it that much. Yeah. And so I'm going to found my own list where we just talk about the singularity, and we'll call that SL4. And this is before he really got into like the AI risk thing because he hadn't quite fully internalized yet the whole alignment problem. So he was still thinking about like, okay, we're going to make AI and we're going to do it as fast as possible, blah blah blah. And then. At some point, of course, he realizes, oh, wait, this is going to destroy the world. And that's about the point where he founds less wrong. But in between there, um, I think there's a really interesting document he writes called the shock levels or the future shock levels. Is which SL4 is essentially, stand for shock level? What? Does SL4 stand for shock level 4? It does. It does. Yeah, it stands for shock level 4. And so he kind of writes this very short, it's not long, a document where he describes, as he sees it, the different almost sociological groups around, it's a very interesting as a historical document, around science fiction and predicting the future. And I actually adapt this idea in, in a lot of my own, in, in my own thinking, where I've kind of like taken it and taken it from a sociological definition to more rigorous, because I think that the shock levels, as he describes them, you know, there's shock level one, which is like the future as it's described in the 1950s. And then there's shock level two, which is basically a space opera like Star Trek. And then there's shock level three, which is Max Moore and his extropians. And then there's SL4, which is Yudkowsky with the AI and the singularity. And does, and does this refer to, like when he's talking about shock levels, is this related to future shock? Yeah, it's absolutely related to future shock. And so he's thinking of it as like your shock level is how much you can accept the consequences of future technologies without being like manic about it or being pessimistic, like just like just soberly consider it like it's a normal part of reality. Yep. And so what I think is interesting about these is that I think there is actually a logic, you know, he doesn't really go into the logic of them. He just kind of talks about them like they are a thing and they are def- we can define them as like social groups. But I think there is a logic to it. And the logic is something like the shock levels are specifically the order in which you're going to have discussions about the future in like a well-educated sci-fi wargaming group, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you just all sit down, you start like actually thinking about the implications of future technologies, you might start with atomic power. You know, if we just actually invest in nuclear power. Uh, 10 times improvement over current reactors will let us desailing enough water for Africans to use it like Americans and 100 times will let us do this. And we know that the underlying theoretical physics of reactors let us make them probably that that powerful, blah, 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 blah. And wow. at some point, someone's going to say to you, well, look, if I have nuclear... Sorry, what? No, no, go ahead. And at some point, someone's going to say to you, well, look, if I have nuclear power, why don't I just make a space rocket, make a... Uh, I'm going to make a, a satellite around the Earth that reflects... Uh, sunlight and then we're just going to concentrate that into a huge beam and then we're going to get tons of energy from the sun you, you get what I, you see what we're going here yeah yeah you know if someone brings this idea power. up uh-huh suddenly atomic power doesn't seem so crazy you know it doesn't seem so fancy anymore it's like oh well you know all these things that we were talking about deep into the weeds of the implication of atomic power well no the first thing you do if with functioning atomic power is you'd go to space and then make better power and you'd start going to other planets and so okay we don't even need to think about all this because the because the space travel is upstream of the of the implications of the atomic power society 
and the Atomic Power Society is upstream of the implications of scarcity politics. And then the nanotech and biotech are upstream of the consequences of the space travel because the future will look nothing like Star Trek because the minute people have anything like a Star Trek society, they will just start editing themselves and make themselves super intelligent and blah, blah, blah. And then those people will take over the universe. But then even that is is not how the future will go because actually we're going to invent AI before any of that matters. And then, you know, and the first thing you would do if you were super intelligent was write a super intelligent artificial intelligence. And then it takes over that. You see how this works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that you can actually like make it rigorous in that sense. Like there is a defined logic to it. It's not just a sociological concept at that point. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about this idea of things that are upstream and downstream of other things in terms of consequences and kind of when you can stop thinking about, you know, the bootstrapping chain almost like, oh, we don't have to think about what we do after this point because at this point you just do this and a new game is started. So would you count this as the success of rationalists? Um, no, but what I was going to say, though, is I think that this is an aspect of like all the things that EY is talking about. It yeah. just doesn't really get because there's this meme, right, where it's a uh, caption. It's like there's a person in the center and they're that one of those like rage face people. I don't I don't know all their names, but it's he's captioned rationalist. He's in the center. And there's a little arrow and it goes to gender pill. They become a girl. It goes to hegel pill or something and they become a post rat or whatever whatever it is and then in the one corner there's question mark question mark question mark and it goes to big yud yeah and and ey actually reacted to this he said you know every time i see this image on my timeline i think to myself i could never figure out what was in those question marks (laughs) and i actually replied to him i said it's the transhumanism dummy Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that those other things are what happens if you are trying, if you're do all these ideas, right? Like X risks, blah, blah, the world's going to, all this stuff. And then you have no way forward. It's like, well, so here's the thing is I feel like EY managed to transmit his idea of AI risk, but he didn't manage to transmit the underlying ideas that would get you to conclude AI risk is important in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So people who are into AI risk are kind of cargo culting it. They don't really have like this sense of like, here's why you should be specifically focusing on this out over everything else, aside from it will happen really soon and it's upstream of all this other stuff, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't like, like I feel like that intellectual journey that he's discussing with these shock levels is actually a really important piece of the pie that or the puzzle, whatever, that he doesn't really discuss in the sequences because in his mind, the sequences are not about transhumanism they're about rationality yeah it's it's sort of interesting when you when you try to explain the ideas that you have to somebody else it's difficult to condense all of the thoughts and experiences that you've had over the course of your life that have led you to reject other ideas and embrace these and that's actually one reason i tend not to try and convince anybody of anything i mean like i can point people toward things that i've read and that have made me think about things but I don't know that I could actually convey the full weight of everything that's gone into any idea that I have. And even, you know, even apart from that, like the, the, I don't think I'm aware of it myself in, in many cases. And, um, so I think I've saved myself a lot of time by say not writing a series of sequences about, <laughs> about I can robot thought, for example. 
Oh, no, sure. Uh, and I, I definitely agree. I think that I think it is really difficult to convey your full experience, especially in words and especially in, you know, you have like this limited bandwidth to discuss things with someone and there's this whole life you've lived that is behind the specific things you are telling them. Like there's there's whole sea of things you could tell people. You're telling this specific set based on your life experience. And I think there is this bias towards trying to discuss ideas as though they just pop up organic, objectively, like, oh, you know, of course you would be thinking about this thing, when in reality, the actual sequence of steps to get there is, you know, almost subjective, like it depends on you going through a certain route through life. Yeah. And I definitely think there's an aspect of that with us. So yeah, so we've got about, I think we've got like 20, 30 minutes left. Yeah, I think I, my hard stop time is six thirty, but I should probably get off a bit before then. And we are definitely going a bit long. Um, oh, yeah, so let, yeah my apologies. So let's just get to the yeah. So I think I've said most of what I wanted to say on other stuff. Let's just get to the kind of the last part, right? Talking about explicitly about how I'd less wrong kind of do with all this. Yeah, and then with uh, you know post rat if if we have any time for that. Sure. I, I, actually, I think we talked a lot, quite a bit already about post rat, right? Like. I think so. I think, I think I said most of what kind of what I feel about it. Yeah, I, I think that came across. So let's yeah, let's let's just do the evaluation and then maybe tie it up if you like. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, so in terms of evaluation, I think we can go back kind of to some of what EY talked about. So you can just start like, let's just start with the things he listed because he gave specific things. And now I don't want to get into a thing where like, you know, if you list something, you must do it, right? Because you, your goals can change, your priorities can change. But I do think there's a sense in which certain things were not done and no equivalent thing was done. So the big one that always stands out to me, and especially is just totally dropped off the discourse, is cryonics. Mm. Yeah. So um, I, I actually was looking into uh, you know what what actually needs to happen for you to get froze uh, recently, and there's an interesting statistic cited that you know only about 400 people I think in. I don't I forget if it was worldwide or the United States, but only about like 400 people have actually been cryogenically frozen. Mm-hmm. And if you believe, like believe that cryonics is this route to defeating death, you know, de- death itself, and your kind, your attitude towards that is, oh yeah, it's really cool, but there's this tiny minority of people who have access to cryonics and actually know to like sign up for it. Yeah, yay, yeah, fun rationality. It's like okay, you're really you know what i mean like it's you've missed the point <laughs> yeah you know so when so when ey advocates for cryonics i don't think it's a i don't think it's like a side thing like oh yeah you know make sure you get froze kids it's like no like you can defeat death right now he even mentions it again in the epistle to the new york less wrongians as a you know he, he reiterates it so it, it's not like a, a tangential thing to him and i think that there's been almost no progress on the cryonics front. If anything, there's been regression. Uh, the costs that, you know, that someone wrote this really nice series of posts about cryonics, like the state of cryonics in 2020. Yeah. And one of the things they wrote about is that if you look at the costs for cryonics orgs, such as the Cryonics Institute and Alcor, their costs, you know, affl- inflation adjusted or whatever costs have gone up since. Oh, no. However, yeah, right. Like, the, the, you know, it's regressing. And so in terms of that, I think that you can just count that as a total F minus minus. I mean, I mean, okay, maybe not total F minus minus, 
but like an F. Like, you know, don't don't call it an F minus, maybe an F, because they did get some people to sign up for cryonics. It became a more memetically available thing. You know, we can talk about it. But yeah. in terms of actual expanding the cryonics movement, uh, bringing down costs so more people can do it, I, I call it an F. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting. Like, as, as you're mentioning this, I think the I think honestly, Robin Hansen has done more to bring this into public sight than than Eliezer with with who who I, I didn't realize was associated with it at all before this podcast. Oh, that oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and Robin Hansen is very publicly pro cryonics. Well, so I think that part of it is that so if you read Great Mambo Chicken, right? Great Mambo Chicken: The Transhuman Condition. It does a really good job at selling cryonics. It talks about how there are all these uh, theoretical physicists who believe it will work, how they actually go uh, kind of have a social group, what they did to found these uh, cryonics organizations. And actually, modern transhumanism in large, like, kind of comes out of the cryonics movement almost. Max Moore, for example, the founder of extropianism, is, I believe, still the CEO of Alcor. Uh, he was like made CEO in 2011 or something. And the actual organizing for the first transhumanist stuff came out of cryonics. And part of that is because cryonics is kind of this point that... So remember that SL3, right? Uh, nanotech and biotech? Yeah, yeah. If you believe the premises behind those, that we will get nanotech and we will have this ability, then cryonics becomes a little bit... I don't want to say 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it becomes a lot easier to swallow as a concept. Mm -hmm. And... Because Elias Yudkowsky doesn't get across these prerequisite ideas before the AI risk, you know, people just read the cryonics thing and they went, oh, that's Elias Yudkowsky being weird. Ignore. Yeah. You know, they, have no, they have no foundation for it. It's like, well, you know, that, oh, that's like a weird thing. He's sounding like a weird thing now. Yeah. I mean, like if, if you were to ask me to just like pitch a reason as to why it failed, I think it's just pure aesthetics. Like, oh, I don't even I don't even disagree with you. I definitely think that there is a thing where, okay, so let's just start with the name, right? So rationality. Yeah, I actually said this to Chapman. I said, I think EY uh, calling it rationality may be one of the greatest mistakes in the history of philosophy. <laughs> that's okay. That That's actually a pretty impressive amount of failure to put into something. Okay. No, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I want, I mean, may, maybe that's a little too much, but really, like, really think about it. It means that from a marketing standpoint, you're undifferentiated because there's a bazillion things called rationality. Objectivism yeah. in the Ayn Randian sense is rationality. Yeah, we're uh, talking Bertrand and Russell and Whitehead. That whole tradition is called rationality. Uh, the whole atheist, new atheist skeptic movement, it calls itself rationality. You're just oh, not going to be it? heard above the noise if that is your name. I thought they were the brights. Oh, oh, sure. Oh, the brights. Oh, gosh. Don't, <laughs> don't bring that up. No. Oh, but you, you get what I mean, though, right? Yeah, like yeah. If, that, if that's your name and that's your branding. And then there's another aspect to it, too, where it's, you know, who is attracted by that name? You know, and you could just go down all the reasons. All like I probably could come up with a dozen reasons. We could go on for a long time. But I do think the name is kind of a microcosm of the larger aesthetics problem. You know, rationality yeah. doesn't have a ton of uh, art, for example. There isn't a bunch of. Because, again, well, because like, OK, so, for example, um, uh, just to throw something out there, uh, communism has a lot of art styles associated with it. There's a lot of propaganda posters. There's all this stuff that goes into promoting the ideology aesthetically. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bunch of artists who are on board with with the with the with the thing. 
Yeah. And, you know, if okay, like one thing I always think about is imagery, for example. Um, so if you just take like a, a, a real, okay, we don't have time for me to completely justify why I'm using this example, but I'm just going to use it. So like take a religion, like say Christianity, and you'll see that there's all this, all, you have these abstract ideas, right? About yeah. the eschaton, about the resurrection, about Christ as a figure. And there's all this imagery around it. And that's where stained glass comes from, is that they needed images to show people, you know, like medieval peasants and stuff. They needed this imagery to show people to help them visualize the abstract uh, ideas that Christianity is putting forward. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, like, Chris, if you want to even talk about art movements, I mean, you know, Gothic and Baroque. I mean, th- those were both very explicitly like Christian associated, right? Oh, sure, sure. Well, I'm just saying just from a perspective of you want to get these ideas across, you want people to, you want them to be sticky. And and there really are like, they're, they're odd ideas, like, you know, like cryonics and stuff. These are not intuitive things to people. And so asceticizing it, a spoon's full of sugar helps the medicine go down. And I feel like I can't even think of imagery for some of the concepts. Uh, I'm fine with that though. I mean, I think if, if you were to ask me right now what the, like what the movement, I, I think most of the aesthetic movement of rationality as I can imagine it. And, and moon might correct me after this is over, in which case I apologize, but I think it's probably fan fiction, right? There's a tremendous amount of creative rationalist energy that goes into making, I mean, somewhat effective propaganda via fan fiction. Oh, no, I, I agree with that. But I also think that that itself is kind of an, that's kind of a double-edged sword, right? And that it brings people in, but it brings a certain kind of person in. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and and I think that like when you're talking about the unconditional tolerance of weirdos thing, isn't that kind of what fandom is? You know that that's like the ethos of fandom. If you're finding that your culture has one has one group that you start out and you've got like math Olympians and stuff, and then over time you're turning towards this unconditional tolerance of weirdos, maybe that's because you know ninety nine percent of your intake funnel now is through fandom communities. Yeah. I'm not not even trying to be judged just as like an objective sociological statement. If you bring in a lot of people who have a certain set of norms and expectations about what a space is for, are those people going to change the norms? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's an extent to which Eliezer like, you know, observed and and considered this problem. And there's, there's an Eliezer post that I definitely have not read about evaporative cooling and you know, I mean, so he was aware of this problem, although maybe not so aware that he didn't write HPMOR. Yeah, right. Ex- exactly. And, right. Like you can say like, oh, he's aware of this problem. And then he produces like this 1200 page fan fi- Harry Potter fan fiction. Yeah. yeah. And and right. I mean, to be clear, I'm not trying to criticize rationalists by about having like a lame art form. I mean, I would say that the post rationalist art form is the expanding brain meme. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, no, sure. <laughs> I'm just talking about, I'm just talking about, so like that. And so that's from like a growth perspective. Like, so I think there's also, so like one thing is like, why didn't less wrong become bigger? And I think that like the aesthetic argument, right. Is part of that. And I think you can get into a lot of reasons for like why it didn't become bigger. Um, though, frankly, I think that in terms of how successful you would naively expect this to be, if you just like explain the concept to someone and say 2008, oh yeah, I'm going to write this really big book about evolutionary psychology and and Bayes theorem and all this. And I'm going to have like people read it. I'm going to put it up on the internet and then it's going to become kind of a a silent canon for a lot of people in Silicon Valley. 
they'd mm-hmm. look at you like you're nuts. It's you know what though? I would say that for a lot of people in Silicon Valley, the canon is not the sequences, it's Slate Star Codex. Oh, oh absolutely. But you get what I mean though, right? Like you Yeah. Like if you actually just said the the, the basic concept to someone in 2008, I think they'd be like what are you talking? This is nuts. This is insane. It's ditto with HPMOR. So I can't argue with success in that sense. I think that in terms of growth and like, you know, like just catching on, I think that it seems likely to me that less wrong has become more influential than general semantics ever was. So I think that's, so I think in that sense, it's successful. I just mean that if we're talking about goals, right? You know, like what was the, what was the thing supposed to do? Well, C-seeding didn't work out, but I think a lot of that is just for reason. Like, like that's a little slow burn thing, so I don't really blame it for that. To me, I think the really interesting one to look at is, for example, AI risk. You know, because the big reason he writes the sequences in the first place is that he wants people to focus on AI risk. Yeah. So I guess the question is, how did that work out? I think it's been a complete success. I, I agree. I think that AI risk went from being like a, a sci-fi schlock concept to a very serious academic thing just oh, overall. I was going to say that I haven't seen a hostile AI since they started. Oh, that's, oh, that's interesting. I, I actually have, but it, the funny enough, I, it was, it was in person of interest, which actually has one of the only halfway decent depictions of AI risk I've ever seen in fiction where the guy is writing his AI and, you know, it changes some of its own code and then he asks it, like, who wrote this? And it says, you did. And then he, and he just turns it off. He's like, I have to start over. Yeah. And it's self-modified without, you know, and it's self-modified and then lied to me. And then later on, he's got to the point where it's, um, you know, it, 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 it overheats a server to try and trigger the fire suppression system to, to kill him. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and but, but the way it's depicted is like, you know, it's not, oh, it becomes powerful. And then the, it's very much, yeah, if this thing becomes you know, just a bit more than superhuman, it's going to, you know, be unleashed on the world and do absolutely terrible things. He even says, you know, morality, AIs aren't born with morality. They're born with objectives. It just does its objective. Mm-hmm. Like it, it explains the, ba- like the basic of, of the problem in a way that, you know, obviously it's still Hollywood. And I'm sure a lot of people would argue like, no, once it becomes you know, intelligent, it'll hard take off. And that's unrealistic. But honestly, I think that's way, way far and above in terms of quality, way better depiction of AI risk than I don't know, like, like war games, right? You ever see war games? uh, Yeah. What about 2001? I've never seen that, but I'm sure I've never seen 2001. I don't watch a lot of movies. Um, I could totally imagine though, that whatever, I'm sure it's cringe. It's beautiful. Oh, oh, you mean Hal. You mean Hal 9. Yeah, oh, Hal. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, I think that that's, a, I think that the problem with Hal is that it's falling prey to the space opera thing where it's like, oh, yeah, we have human level AI, but it doesn't actually bootstrap to super intelligence or even like, you, oh, you get sure. what I mean? It's like you have a normal space. Op- so like, like part of what makes the person of interest thing seem so good is that it's very much not. There's nothing really incongruous about it. Like it's a thing that could really happen. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, no. Well, so I would, I would agree with you on the AI risk. Another one is that, you know, he says, okay, C-steeding, 
I'm going to go ahead and give him a pass on sea steeding because I think that that turned out to be harder than people imagined for reasons that maybe were foreseeable, for, foreseeable but maybe not. So I'm going to give him a pass on it. The Mefuzla Foundation. So that would be something. I, I think I believe that's that's a life extension org. Yeah. I don't even I, when I clicked the link, it was uh, gone. So I think they're 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 kaput. But so that one is I'm I'm kind of like yeah no I don't think any real I don't think any real progress was made on life extension by the rationalists. Yeah. You know, n- n- I'm going to go ahead and give same as cryonics. I'd give that an F. So, okay. So at this point I, I was talking, you know, I had that chat with QC the other yeah. day and yeah. he mentioned what he did at some of the, I think CFAR summer. Camp. Uh, it was at MIRI. He said he worked at MIRI. It, it was at, he was at, was at Miri, but this, were the summer camps Miri? Uh, no, the summer camps are. C- I actually don't know. I I know CFAR does a summer camp. I think okay. Miri might also do a summer camp. Okay, so like he talked about how that went from. I think he said that he was teaching a course maybe in Bayesian stats the first time that he did it, and then by the end of it, it was like here's a course in how to have fun, and <laughs> and like that actually feels kind of like a sort of post rationalism. No, absolutely. And I think that um, in terms of, okay, so one thing I have here is kind of Darcy Riley's 2014 post on post-rationality. And she basically says that post-rationality is like, you know, rationalists think that their system one is bad and they hate it and they try to like lionize their system too. But really the system one is useful and it's valuable. And it's like, I don't really think that gets at it at all. I think that if you read the sequences, EY does get, he talks a lot about biases because those are the parts of CIS1 that are bad. But he also says, you know, if you didn't have emotions, you wouldn't have values. Emotions are your values. They are the most important part of your your brain almost in terms of like your, your identity and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think there's an extent to which a lot of post-rationality to, to, I mean, you know, if you want to start a intellectual history of that, I I think it's probably more influenced partly by things like uh, Ian McGilchrist, for example, or Geiger Renzer, who, who talk a lot about bounded rationality and about some specific mechanisms for, you know, just generating thought. And, and, and and, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I think there are people who are like, yeah, thinking is bad. And I definitely fall into that Bailey from time to time because it's fun. It's a lot of fun to be illiterate, I have to tell you. But I, I, I mean, if you were to ask me to actually express what I think as opposed to what happens to be fun to express at any point in time, which is torment, like pure torment, um, I, I, I think I would have a much more measured take on it, which is like, yeah, it's very important to have this kind of an explicit and formalized system and that's a tool that you can use in conjunction with, you know, some kind of a faster and heuristic based system. And the real strength is having some amount of integration between those two things and being able to like integrate them beautifully, pivot back and forth as it becomes useful for some particular space. And it, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely agree with that. And I think that I think basically everyone this is where it gets weird for me. I think basically everyone in the conversation agrees with what you just articulated that, right? You yeah. obviously have a heuristic based system and you have, and you have a, I don't want to say non-rational because the thing is that there's always reasons you are thinking things. Mm-hmm. 
in a certain sense. You know, it's not like they just pop up randomly. You know, you you have and hold hypothesis for specific reasons, even if those reasons aren't something that, say, a Bertrand Russell would endorse. Yeah. But but there is a logic to it. And I that I wonder about. Actually, I am not sure that I have any amount of logic that goes into like the generation of hypotheses on my side. I have a thread about this somewhere. All right. Like, all right. When I when I get a hypothesis, it's like having a direct revelation. It's and, and you know, sometimes it turns out to be right, sometimes it turns out to be wrong, but I never get there by some kind of a systematic process. It just pops in my head and whole that's, like that's interesting. Form. I usually yeah. I usually experience it as the system helps me to narrow it down to a particular space, but only so far. And after that, you just kind of got to go digging, looking. It's like exploring. Like you've narrowed down to a particular set of space that you're going to think about. And you're just, you're not, you don't have a process beyond that point that can help you figure out the thing. You just have to kind of look almost. It's like, like I said, it's like exploring a space. And sometimes you find what you're looking for. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you find it quickly. Sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. But that final, you know, that final portion can't be, it can't be systematized, at least not by any, uh, I, it is beyond my ability to systematize it. Yeah. Like, that way. Did, did Moon go off at you about reading the master and his emissary? I do not think she did. But, but what, what I was going to say though, is that I think everyone in the conversation agrees roughly with that though that you know there is a set of systematic techniques you can use to aid your heuristic based thinking most of what you do is heuristic based thinking on a daily basis yeah so you know if you can find ways to improve that that's probably more useful than if you can you know moderately improve your uh you know your explicit reason one thing i would say is that uh, so there's Scott's crypto autopsy, right? Have you ever read that? No, but here. Okay, is. so let me let me briefly explain this then. Uh, maybe. So after we, I'm I, I should probably hop out of here pretty soon. So I know you should. I know you should. Um, yeah. All right, fine. Uh, the the basic thing with it is that he goes through and he basically says, okay, the first people to use Bitcoin were less wrongers. And, you know, Gwern and these other people literally predicted that Bitcoin would become big. You know, this is what he says. Uh, you know, the first mention of Bitcoin on Less Wrong, a post called Making Money with Bitcoin, was in early 2011 when it was worth 91 cents. Gwern predicted that it could someday be worth upwards of $10,000. He also quoted Mold, uh, Moldbug, who advised that if Bitcoin becomes a new global monetary system, one Bitcoin purchase today for 90 cents will make you a very wealthy individual. Even if the probability of Bitcoin succeeding is epsilon, a million to one, it's still worthwhile for anyone to buy at least a few Bitcoins now. I would not put it a million to one though. So I recommend that you go out and buy a few if you have the technical chops. My financial advice is not buy more than 10, which should be FU money if Bitcoin wins. And the thing is, is that at the time when this advice was given, if you had done that, you know, it was $10. If you had done that, you would now be a millionaire or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or well, what, okay, wait, no, Bitcoin's a fifty k each, something like that. Okay, so yeah, so you'd have like a half a million dollars That's if that if, if if all you had done was just you know just literally just listen to that and say hmm, seems reasonable, do it, hold on to your private key for a while, you know, don't hold it on Mount Gox, you got to actually hold it locally, 
Yeah. And then, you know, and then you just hodled and you just didn't even think about it. Besides like knowing where the key is, you would be quite wealthy right now in, in relative terms, especially for a $10 initial uh, cost. Yeah. And this, this is good. And I, I actually want to close on this just to like end with a compliment no, to, absolutely. Make sure, to make sure that I am not sending the wrong message. I, I, I think I still see rationalists and post-rationalists as part of the same kind of amorphous group. And I would like both to thrive and like the better rationalists get the better off we are and, and vice versa. And I'm like, you know, even to the extent that there's any gains from specialization here. And um, I don't know. I mean, we talked about those four goals that Yudkowsky initially set out to, to like have people try and work at. And I think that it's completely rational to drop some of those goals. If it turns out to be much harder to implement them, than than you might expect, or if the perceived value of things decreases and like, you know, rationalists did like that Bitcoin stuff. Incredible. Great work, you know. Well, actually, so that well, actually, what Scott said was that very few people actually made money, even though they had predicted it correctly. Oh, that it, it was a criticism. Oh, so his post was a long criticism, essentially of, of the sort that you know, if you guys are so smart and you literally predicted the best investment of the century, probably, why aren't you rich? Yeah, did they not and, find? And I think that there's a lot, and unfortunately we're done here, but I think there is a rich lot of stuff that you could analyze in there. And Scott does, and you can find this post on Less Wrong. It's, uh, I think it's the cryptocurrency autopsy or something. It's a Scott post. You can find it just by searching for it. Yeah. And it's an excellent thing that goes into a lot of it. In terms of post rat versus rat, um, I, like I said, I think it's, I think people agree on the basic points there. I think that what's actually the argument is about something like aesthetics and the way you should socially organize yourself and about how you should, you get what I mean? I don't think it's actually an argument about ideas. Yeah. I think that it's because the ideas themselves are rarely brought up. And when they are, it's usually in like a straw man way, like, oh yeah, you know, those rationalists don't think that you have feelings. And when the post and when the rationalists are critiquing the post, it's like, Oh yeah, those guys are like hippy dippy. And so like, there's very little actual discourse around the ideas themselves. I think that most of what is discussed is just these people's aesthetics are bad and I don't like them. In fact, a, a silver, a, a no silver. I don't know. Yeah. yeah he's know, great. Rival. Voices. Yeah. Like he, that's literally what he says. He just says, I have an aesthetic objection to rationality. Yeah. And, Which, and I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, realistically, we we have separate parties, but we go to a lot of the same parties. And, like, rationalists do acid, and post-rationalists actually study a hell of a lot of math. You know? It's like, eh. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I feel about it. It feels a little bit like a tempest in a teapot. If anything, I think if there's any uh, enmity there, it's mostly a matter of these people are so similar that their differences become, like... <laughs> You know what I mean? You, you know, like those, uh, oh, yeah. like, it, like in any movement where you have like the dozen splinter factions that all like are nearly like at the point of like strangling each other over these extremely minor ideological differences. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's I'm, almost how I feel about the rat versus post rat beef. Like it's extremely, it's like a mix of mutual misunderstanding and then like actual real differences in terms of aesthetics, uh, social 
organization, stuff like that. I, I do think that mostly it's meta though. I think that in terms of the actual ideas, these people 99% agree with each other. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, you know, to be real and, and focusing just on recent events, I mean, post rats were really pissed about what New York Times did to Scott. I think our reaction was somewhat different in execution than than came from the rationalist side, but everybody was interested and everybody was, I think, really in kind of a reactive way, quite protective of, I mean, somebody that basically I think we see as one of our own, even if he doesn't exactly look at it like that. <laughs> No, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I would, I, I'd be surprised if you made like a post rat cannon and Scott wasn't in it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like he's, I mean, he's, he's like a Khalif, right? Like it, I just going by the questions on some of his surveys, I think he falls quite a bit more into the hard rat tradition, but I mean, like he's well, well read, widely read, and well loved by by everyone in the post rat sphere, and I think he's kind of a floating signifier for for the entire like mega tribe. So we have about ten minutes, and it's funny that uh, you brought up Scott right now because if you remember, uh, I do actually have a story that is related to Scott. Okay, know, yeah, yeah, sort of way, and it's basically about this guy. Let me find this here. Hmm. All right, so there's this guy in. Think about the tw- in, in like probably the twenties, maybe. His name was Boris Brazel, and Korzybski, Alfred Korzybski met him in this uh, scene he was in. Right, these people were trying to figure out how to prevent World War II, and Boris Brazel, uh, he met Korzybski, and he seemed like a really cool guy to him. And Korzybski was just immediately impressed with his intellect and his blah blah blah. And Boris Brazel also was a secret agent working for the uh, Russian government. And his mission was to provoke outrage over the communist insurrectionists, right? That were, well, actually, let me, let me, let me rephrase that. So at this, actually, there's, there's a slight bit of context. So there's the Russian revolution, right? In 1918. Mm-hmm. But you also have the civil war that happens afterwards. And so the, right. the Tsarist government didn't immediately go away. You still had like the old hand of, of the old guards still hiding out and doing stuff geopolitically, even though yeah. nominally the government had been overthrown. Blah, blah. And so he was working on behalf of this conspiracy. And his basic Wait, he mission. Was, he was working for the whites or the reds? The the whites. He was. Oh, okay, them. okay, good. Yeah. So, and so his goal was to basically convince people that communism was a Jewish plot to take over the world. Oh. And so Korzybski met him, and he introduced him to his friend group, the New Machine. And this kind of. So the thing about Boris uh, Brazel, is that he kind of was ca- caused the Holocaust, in a roundabout way. He wrote. I believe he wrote the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Oh, he, he, oh shit. And, okay. and he circulated it around to all of these people. And he, and, he, and he went to the State Department and he started circulating the ideas there. And, you know, he then was sponsored by Henry Ford. And Henry Ford's work on anti-Semitism was, I believe, ultimately the inspiration for Hitler. So in a roundabout way, this guy literally caused the Holocaust. <sighs> and, and so his brief, and so what? Yeah. 
that's an interesting way of phrasing it. His work on anti-Semitism, like you would usually interpret that as a meaning like working against it, but no, he, okay. Furthering it. Yeah. Go on. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm just, I'm being, obviously it's, I'm just trying to be historical here. I'm not. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, for sure. No, total, no, I, I get what you mean. It is kind of an odd phrase when I, when it came out of my mouth, I was like, that, that's a kind of a, maybe, mm. but still, so he's doing this and, very, you know, obviously, uh, very in ob- again ob- objective terms, very successful at it. And this part of Korzybski's history kind of damaged his reputation, at least in, in uh, historically, because he did have a brief friendship with this person, and he did introduce him to his friend group. And this person um, was a horrible, like had absolutely horrible ramifications for how the 20th century played out. And so in Bruce Kodish's biography, which, by the way, is excellent, and I recommend it. It's where most of my knowledge of Korzybski comes from. Is uh, it, It's just called Korzybski, a biography. He yeah. actually spends a lot of time discussing Korzybski's relationship to anti-Semitism. And I don't know this, but my inference is that Korzybski probably got a lot of flack for this brief association he had with Boris Brazel. Was, was Brazel... I mean, like you mentioned, he was an agent. Was he outwardly and explicitly an anti-Semite himself, or was that something he did covertly? Yeah, so that's a little bit of the thing, is that Boris Brazel did not put his name on the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. He wrote it anonymously, and he did spread anti-Semitic ideas, but and obviously he was very successful at it, but I don't know if Korzybski really fully understood, but what's actually interesting about the story is that you know, Korzybski himself briefly became an anti-Semite. And then later on, he repudiated it completely. He said that was horrible. And more to the point, he actually started to use anti-Semitism as his model of a mimetic disease. Mm. So to him, you know, if you look at an anti-Semite, they start out with like, you know, that the Jews are so bad and they're awful. And then they descend and I've actually seen this happen. I can totally see why he would think of it like a progressive disease because I've seen this happen to people is they start out with like a little little bit of anti-Semitism. And then, you know, it's like, no, the Jews are controlling the banks and the world and they're and it's just like building and building and building. And like all of a sudden, everything is about the Jews and the Jews are the worst thing to ever happen to humanity and all this horrible stuff. And it's like it takes over their mind. It's, you know, it's 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 the brain worms. It's anti-Semitic brain worms. And Korzybski actually modeled a lot of his philosophy on combating this kind of crankery, whatever you want to call it, crankery, bigotry, this kind of brain worms. Uh It became a big part of his thing was not necessarily anti-Semitism per se, but the generalized version of combating anti-Semitism, of trying to bring people to sanity in the sense that anti-Semitism is wrong. There is no Jewish conspiracy to control the world. You know, this stuff is conspiracy theory. It is, it's crap, right? Yeah. And so a lot of course, and so like, I think there is kind of a parallel there in that, you know, and, and as I put it in a, during the recent Scott drama on Twitter, I said something like, well, look, Scott, <laughs> Moldbug was going to become popular. Yeah, that's the right. That's the comparison I'm making. Moldbug to to Boris Brazel. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, Moldbug was going to become popular regardless of what Scott did, and Boris Brazel was going to succeed 
regardless of whether Korzybski had happened to introduce him to this friend group or not. Mm-hmm. But the interaction between the two is interesting in that Boris, you know, uh, Korzybski later, you know, his run-in with anti-Semitism was a key foundational thing that helped him create his helpful philosophy, right? Yeah. His kind of vaccine to it, which is actually how uh, Drive Yourself Sane is advertised, kind of, you know, if you read this book, it cures bigotry is like one of the reviews on the back. And I am, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit complicated as a metaphor. Like, I, I mean, ha- I do, but I also just think that the, the parallel is really fascinating. Like the yeah. fact that there's a parallel, it even like, just like, wow, that's an interesting one. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I And man, I do think that, there, I think there's a lot of people who do see Moldbug as a Boris Brazel kind of figure. Yeah. You can, you can d- agree or disagree with that. I think that there's a lot of people who their literal conception of Mencius Moldbug is that he is this person who is going to cause absolutely great amounts of horror in the future by his contribution to the discourse. Yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts on that. that yeah, we're not going there because we're about done. But yeah. and so I guess what I feel about the Scott thing to close is that you know how Scott ended up engaging with Moldbug. He was never really a re- he, he was never a neo reactionary. His engagement was mostly this is horrible. So I'm going to start by presenting my best you know my best ca- version of it so that I'm arguing against something solid and then. I'm going to systematically dismantle, dissect, and show the ways in which this is just, you know, total crankery. And I think that, you know, so I actually made an edition of Slate Star Codex uh, called Slate Star Codex Abridged, mm-hmm. which is not, it, it's not edited. It's it's only abridged in the sense that I only use some of his essays. Uh-huh. But in there, the first kind of sequence of posts is about defending liberalism. And where that starts is with his discourse on neo-reaction, because his whole point of engaging with neo-reaction was to say, look, no, the liberal system isn't decadent and worn out and we need a new monarch ruler. You know, this is kind of crankery. And I'm going to start by laying out like what the neo-reactionary argument is, and I'm going to demolish it. And I think if you actually read those posts in sequence, he does a really good job of that. And it was, a, oh, I think it was a net positive thing for him to do. And for the, you know, the New York Times to come after him for it is, I mean, it's ludicrous. It's, it's, I'd say it's vindictive. It's, it's nuts. I, I mean, like, I, okay, I, I had a brief thread earlier on liberalism and maybe, maybe just liberals, because, you know, ultimately this is, this is an idea that's embedded within, you know, human substrates. I, I think Scott is a liberal who has the courage of his convictions and the fact that, other liberals or people who might perceive themselves to be liberals are not explicitly defending him and taking up his torch on this is, I I think it's kind of rank cowardice and I'm really disappointed by public figures who by, by especially the old institutions that you might've identified as liberal, right? Like say the ACLU or even the New York times for some parts of its history. Although I frankly don't think New York times really deserves any kind of a positive record. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of a downer for me, but Scott, Scott's a bright point. Yeah. I think we can agree on that. Scott is a bright point. And I'm really glad that I'm glad, I'm glad he, he contributed. Yeah. 
Okay. I definitely have to go. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. That's it. That's, that's the end of yeah. the episode. Yep. That is the, that is the episode in conclusion. Fuck. Yeah. Scott. Um, <laughs> hey, man, it's, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks for dumping all of that. No problem. Thank you. Bye. Mm-hmm.